Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Feiler. In today's episode, I talk with Boyce Littlefield. He's a blogger. Uh, he runs a website called The Trickle Up and a podcaster and a live streamer. We talk about our political ideologies, God, the parlor website, religious fundamentalism, the the potency of humiliation, the healing power of comedy, and the healing power of laughter, our near-death experiences, neuroatypicality, race in America, and its downstream and pernicious effects. There is one point in the show in which it might be understood that I'm calling for civil war, uh, that I want us to have civil war. And I want to take a moment to make sure that that goes out clearly before we get into the show. Uh, and some will understand, even in the context, what I mean. I don't want civil war. I don't know any reasonable person that would want that. When I say that we need to talk about civil war and, and mention it explicitly, it's only in the effort to bring to light those phenomena that would rather exist in the dark. I do not want Americans to shoot each other in the streets in these heightened political times. And I think that we have to discuss that possibility explicitly in order to prevent it from becoming a reality. At any case, I hope you enjoy the show. It's a damn good book. He's got a YouTube channel that fucking exploded. Um, very, very good stuff. So I'm actually going to do like a book review. I've actually... Uh, listen to the audio book and I've re watched every one of his videos and now I'm actually going through his book to go back and do like a, a breakdown and uh, you know from my own point of view being a white person with biracial children and you know in a, in a biracial uh, relationship really um, it's it's uh, informative at least it's helpful I dig but, yeah, it it's a really good book man I dig it why don't you tell the uh, the people who you are and where you're from Hey, I'm uh, Boyce Littlefield. I'm the host of the Mindful Skeptics podcast and the co-founder of the Trickle Up. And I live in southwest Michigan, a small town called Coloma. Coloma, Michigan. Yep. I'm sure that's a great town. What got you into... So we are affiliated. We met on a Yang... What was it? Humanity Forward hangout? Yeah, I believe so. And so what got you excited about participating in Humanity Forward? Well, you know, um, when if Andrew you're public with that information, I hope you're not. I mean, oh, <laughs> anybody can discern I'm, that by going from to mindful skeptics. I'm as open as a book as you can get. Almost, yeah. um, I, I dox myself. I put out my phone number. I tell everybody where I live. I don't care. Um, I have nothing to hide, man. So I don't. I don't have anything to, nice. <laughs> to censor myself, nice. information wise. Um, and but yeah, I uh, after Andrew dropped out, you know, we're all kind of trying to figure. Okay, what direction are we gonna go? Or is this thing going to splinter? Mm. You know, and then me and some other people in the back were just kind of like just having discussions about it. And then Andrew helped us by forming Humanity Forward. And that kind of helped codify some of our energy. Um, and then that just got me involved. And now I'm helping start a Humanity Forward chapter in Michigan. Uh, me and a couple of the people have co-founded it and got things going, you know. So nice. I'm, I'm all in trying to make a difference any way we can because... I feel like Andrew Yang's made more difference with humanity forward in people's lives than our government. So I heard about basic income way back in, I think it was about 2017, maybe earlier, maybe, maybe 16. Um, and I didn't think I would heard about it as an abstract idea. Uh, and I liked it. I said, okay, this was cool for, 
um, most Americans, for many Americans, maybe not most, but many Americans, but I didn't think of it as a reality for myself. Uh, and I also didn't think that it was going to become a reality for this country at any time in the near future. So I said, it's an interesting idea. It seems good. Uh, but then when Andrew came on the scene and said, we're going to do basic income in America, I went through the roof. <laughs> I said, this yeah. guy's the guy. Uh, man, so exciting. What's your how did you learn about basic income before I'm, I assume did you know about it before Andrew I guess let me ask that absolutely not um I was apolitical mm. and I didn't give two shits about politics because I felt like why argue over something that's not gonna change anything mm. I felt like it was pointless and like dedicating your life to being a political pundit seemed like a really fruitless endeavor and I just was like I'm, I got better things to do in my life I got kids I got a job. You know, um, but then I started my my podcast and my YouTube channel um, primarily to talk about uh, religion because I live, you know, I grew up as an uh, in a fundamentalist home, but I'm an atheist. I'm an outward, active, verbal atheist, mm. um, and I I like to debate, you know, and to learn about all other religions to have a better understanding where they come from and, and easier to debate that on that. But then I just decided one day that I'm going to – I saw people were announcing they're running for president. And then I started looking into everybody's backgrounds and their policy pages and stuff and did like a website review thing. And I just started making a video about, okay, I looked into Bernie. Here's his platform. Okay, these are things I do like. These are things I'm confused about, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Then I just happened to – Andrew was mentioned, and I looked him up and read his policies, which was – Back then, in February 10th of 2019, it was only 66 policies, or 62 policies. <laughs> um, only, and 60, then it, only 62. Only 62, yeah. yes. Yeah. And eventually it became 166. Yeah. Um, I read every single one of them, eventually. But uh, once I read his policies, and it kind of, at first, you know, you get that, that visceral reaction. UBI is like, oh, sure, I'm going to give everybody a 1000 bucks, and I'm also going to... Uh, make two lunches in middle school cafeterias, you know, mm. like, Oh, any other promises you want to write? You mm. know, like mm. it didn't make any sense um, because we've been, we've been indoctrinated into thinking it isn't mm -hmm. um, that's mm -hmm. silly. You can't just not work and get money um, or keep working and get money. Um, but then I kept looking into it, man. And I started reading more and I, I, uh, I watched his, I went back because I'm a big Sam Harris fan and Joe Rogan fan and so am I. the Thinking Atheist fan. Those are my top three of my three people why I podcast to begin with. Mm. Um, but I, I went back to listen to Sam Harris's interview with him because I did hear it, but I didn't think much of it. Because I was like, okay, that's a nice concept. Mm. Uh, it's like quantum physics. It's, I put UBI and quantum physics in the same box. Like, okay, nice. Yeah. But what are you going to do with that? Like, it wasn't applicable. Well, then I went back to listen to Sam Harris's interview with him, and I was like, damn it, that he made it make more sense. That helps. Um, and then I started doing other people's policies. Like I remember the next one was Elizabeth Warren. I liked Elizabeth Warren. She had good policies, but it paled in comparison. I was like, he has a funding mechanism. Hmm. He's thought this thing through. He has hmm. 66, 62 policies. Hmm. She has 12. You know, um... And everyone had to grow their policy page out because of Andrew later. But but that kind of got me into it and got me really thinking. Then I found Scott Santons. Yeah. And then I, you know, that was an endless plethora of information on universal basic income. 
Um, and it just kind of got me thinking and just, I kept watching and listening and, you know, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to hold this guy as the gold standard. And so I hear any different, I'm going to support him. And then I donated to a campaign for the first time in my life. Um, and I actually got to donate. I was one of the first, what would that be? 30,000 donors Hmm. because it, I, I donated $5 to make sure you got on that first debate stage. Because yep. you had to have 30,000 donors was the only requirement. It wasn't a money requirement yet. I think it was 30,000. Whatever the first one, the first debate was, I donated for that sucker hmm. uh, the, the first time around. And I, ever since then, I've just like, you know, what? I'm dedicating my channel to this. I got I to gotta help elevate because I've always been independent. I've voted Democrat and Republican because, hmm. you know, I felt like I've always had to vote for the lesser of two evils. I never voted for something. I always voted against something. Well, that's what a like, pass-the-post system will get you. It's always the lesser two evils. You got it. And so with Andrew, I thought, I'm going to vote for something. This is this is new. And it just gives me gave me energy and hope. And hope is a very energizing uh, emotion. So it just gave me energy and, and helped me focus my day. I'm like, okay, I get home from work. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read this. I'm going to do a video. I'm going to edit the video, and I'll put it out tonight. You know, like I had this plan every day which before that i had a lot of boredom um really was bored life was boring you know and 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 predictably boring well i can Um, tell you that for me for me all the all the political leaders i'd been paying attention since um i guess i started paying attention a little bit with obama uh, not deep attention, not deep analysis, but just enough to kind of go, you know, who am I, am I really on this capital D Democrat team, right? Just because my family is Democrat by assumption. Uh, and my family, conservative is synonymous with crazy. If I say there's some conservative idea, they go, oh, he's crazy. Uh, that's the way my family goes. And I'm working hard to push back uh, against that in our culture. I don't hold that view now, not by any long shot. Uh, but that's where I came up. And so when I when Obama was in office... I said, well, let me actually pay attention to what he's doing and see if I really am a capital D Democrat on my own accord. Uh, and when he bombed, I think it was Libya, I don't I said, you know what? I don't support this. Uh, I'm not with yeah. I'm not with this continued interventionism. And so I became in California. It's called no party preference uh, where I can I'm not registered with any party in this state. Uh, I ask for the Democratic ballot because those are my leanings. Uh, but I'm not registered as a Democrat, uh, and I'm not, I don't have allegiance to the Democratic Party, not by any not by any measure. But Andrew, um, so looking at paying attention to Obama, and then kind of paying attention to the senators. Oh, Bernie hit my scene in twenty. When when was that? Whenever the housing crisis was, uh, my mom actually what, got two thousand eight. Two thousand eight. Uh, yep. So my mom got backwards on a uh, on a house, mm-hmm. and. You know, she took a, she took a loan that was too big for her, right? So she shares the blame of that. But they also gave her a loan that they shouldn't have given her. Uh, it was yeah. way too much. It's predatory. Um, it's predatory. And so Bernie was the only voice, the only. And this is something that I actually came up to on my own before I heard Bernie say it. I said, you know what? They're talking about giving the money to the banks. How about you just give the money? to the people or, or give the money to the banks on behalf of the people in the houses. That way the banks get their money, the banks stay solvent, and the people stay in their houses. Uh, why not do that? And I'd come up with that. And then it was maybe a couple weeks later, a couple days later, I heard Bernie say, how about we give the money to the to the banks 
uh, on behalf of the people or we give it to the people and let them give it to the banks so on and so he was the only one the only one putting forward that solution i said this guy is a true leader not just somebody who's been elected not just an elected official but a true leader in the terms of thought leading and social leading uh and yeah, so i was I, all in on yeah, bernie until andrew came along and andrew is a thought leader of the philosophical sense well, to me, Bernie, I supported Bernie in 2016 as well, I, and I voted third party. I voted libertarian in 2016 mm. as a as a big fu to the to the duopoly. Um, so I was like, 326 million people and these two idiots? Are you kidding me? Mm. Like that just I was like it just I was like, man, you gotta be kidding me. Um, so I've always been kind of disgruntled at the whole system, and that was my big fu moment, and I've regretted it ever since, honestly, because Trump won Michigan by a very narrow margin. And I was like, crap, I'm part of the problem in Michigan that got him in. No, and, I don't subscribe to that. Uh, <laughs> there was well, a whole it, bit on the on a American Horror Story about third-party voters ruined Hillary. Whatever, Hillary was a deeply flawed candidate. So, well, they didn't do anything to earn my vote, so yeah, they didn't get it. Yeah. You know, So it's, the, it's, on, it's on you, the, the candidate, to earn people's votes, not by default, you know, which is going back to the old thing, you know, voting for the lesser of two evils. Mm. Um, but, yeah, for Bernie in 2008 – I actually lost my ass on my first home during that. Mm. When I got divorced, I had two years to sell my house. And of course, <laughs> my house went from a $135,000 uh, SEV to sixty five. excuse me, to $65,000. I lost $25,000 on that house. Jeez, and then geez. I had to pay income tax on that because if you short sell your house, the banks take a write-off of their loss. And then you have to pay an income tax on whatever that gap is. Hmm. So the banks determine how much you lose and how much they get to damage control and they get this number that works out for them for taxes. But they still win. They break mm. even at least. Mm. Um, but I thought about that same thing of bailing out the banks. I'm like, wait a minute. Instead of bailing out the banks, pay off mortgages and then it doesn't bankrupt people and that doesn't get houses in repossession, which doesn't decrease home values, which doesn't decrease funding to schools which doesn't, you know, kill communities, which doesn't make people homeless. Like all these things are prevented by going through us, like trickle up. I thought about trickle up economics economics from that point forward is like, why the hell are we dumping water? Like if you're looking at farming, right? Hmm. I like to use the idea of a fruit tree. If you see a, a tree that's providing great fruit, bountiful product, and the fruit is jobs, is, is um, uh, let me say employers. You know, so all these fruits of labor are there. You don't pour more water on the fruit. You pour water at the root. That's how you produce more bountiful food, fruit. You have to go through the roots. Mm. We are the roots of this economic tree, mm. you know, and, and capitalism is the trunk. Trunk. So we participate. You can't have capitalism without capital. You can't have fruit without water. And so, like, that's kind of how I visualize it. I'm like, what the hell is going on? We keep dumping water. On I'm the on the top same page. Uh, I think that's a. I think money as water is a very deep analogy. Money as water, and also money as energy, is a very deep analogy. Yeah, and it's and you're preventing suffering by doing it that way. Hmm. They'd rather us suffer and guarantee that the banks win right out the gate. Because as soon as you give us the poor people, the everyday normal people as Andrew would call us, money, we spend it. And I think I can't remember this one statistic that showed that the average dollar in a black community stays in there for about two days. The average funds in a Hispanic community stays about five. 
And in a white community, it's like two months. You know what I mean? Like that shows you how much money that circulates out of your neighborhoods of poor people so fast because there's no uh, there's no capitalists in that community to recycle that money, like privately owned mom and pop shops. They're all been shut down by Walmart. Mm. So I live in a small town of Coloma with like 1,500 people. Oh, I have wow. to drive 15. Yeah, I have to drive 1,500? 15 total. Yeah. What? Yep. Mm-hmm. Like my kids, like I did, like I, I even lived in a smaller town than that when I went to high school. It was only like a thousand. Wow. I graduated. My graduating class was only 88 people. And that included the adult ed people. Like it was a small town. Did your, did your county go red in 2020? Absolutely. Oh, dude, you're there. You're where, you're where I need to spend more time because I'm here in the city, uh, right? Mm-hmm. I'm in Santa Ana proper, a uh, city proper, but we're, you know, LA culture, LA County and all of its influence pretty much runs through this whole area. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're, we're convinced that we have it right. I think this is one of the biggest flaws in American cities today is that people who live in cities think that their ideas are the absolute best and the people in the heartland have no way of getting it right. Um, mm-hmm. and so you're right there with, with reasonable, honest, hardworking, uh, conservatives and Republicans and Trump supporters saying, what the hell is wrong with these liberals? Yeah. And I'm the enigma. I'm the guy with a Yang sticker on my trunk and an atheist hat and a shirt. You know, how like, does, how does that go over? You know, <laughs> oh, lots of great conversations. Um, I, I welcome challenging conversations and like, I, I like, so my, I have a company car. I work for a home care physical, I'm a physical therapist assistant in home care. So I actually go to people's homes and treat COVID patients right now, actually. Hmm. Um, but like, I'll put a pin. I used to put my pins on my work bag. So every time I went to a Yang event, I would collect a pin and it'd be like, you know, uh, Tennessee for Yang or women for Yang or disabled Americans for Yang or vets for Yang, all these different uh, groups. I would collect pins everywhere I went. And so I had my bag covered like probably about 20 different gang pins, political pins. Mm. And then after a while, my patients like, hey, what's these all about? I'm like, oh, it's funny you mention it because I can't bring up politics. You know, it's yeah. work. Yeah. But if they ask, I can answer their questions. Yeah. And if we disagree, we move on. You know, I said, like, that's just where I'm at, you know. But like, so I've always been this different guy. And plus, I have an, a hat that has the atheist symbol on it. And people think, it's, think it means anarchy, you know. Yeah. And so I, I like to wear these things to normalize them. And to create com- opportunities for conversations. Um, what have you found and, and to works. been your one of your most powerful bridging points with people when you're talking when you're talking about your division? We can we the divisions are on the surface uh, and they're intelligent. I think they're mm-hmm. reasonable people on both sides. What mm-hmm. have you been? What have you found to be your most powerful bridge where you can agree with somebody when you hit on that topic politically? Just any yeah anybody or, who's or conservative either either uh, somebody mm-hmm. who somebody who opposes you either religiously or politically what have you found to be your most powerful bridge? Uh, definitely not religion because nobody mm-hmm. budges typically. Mm-hmm. Um, politics has a little more wiggle room, but politically, um, I just say f both systems because they're both rich and we're not. And they're going to keep it that way, mm-hmm. and they don't want to change the system because they're the winners in this system. Um, and that's kind of how I've always approached it to be like, everybody's like, well, you don't support Trump. So you, you support Joe Biden. I was like, no, I voted for him. There's a difference. Mm. I don't support Joe Biden. He's a, he's a business as usual Democrat, a corporately sponsored Democrat. 
a corporately sponsored politician in general, which is most of them. And I just tell people, I support people that represent the people that don't take corporate PAC money and that have morals that they got elected because of those things. Now, getting those things into policies, that's the tricky part. Um, we, we see with AOC, they've already bended her a little bit to their will of you got to play the game or we won't pass anything you want type of thing right now with like forcing the vote on Medicare for all in the right. House. Um I would love to see us pressure the hell out of both Senate and, and the House to get Medicare for all and the basic income. That'd be, wow, what a different world we'd live in. We'd have to worry about health care and Jesus. Um, what a pipe dream for now. Um, but yeah, so like for me, I bridge the gap by being critical of both parties. Mm. That way I get them to agree with me on something. Mm. And then we can kind of, that's my strategy is to find some common ground and then kind of nibble at the edges and get to the core of it is they don't care about us. Mm -hmm. They are the rich and the elite. They are worth $50 million and they're getting paid $174,000 a year to do nothing. Well, not nothing. They're doing mm -hmm. all they can to keep us from getting a $2,000 check. Oh, yeah, which is nothing. They do nothing and nothing, yeah. nothing changes. They don't give us jack shit. They do nothing. Like the, I looked up Michigan, Michigan's um, state uh, congress. Uh, voting records like percentages it's like 40 percent of the people vote 40 percent mm. of the time mm. 40 that's a failing grade in every education system around the world that's right so what other job could you do and that's what i tell you like, if i did if i showed up here and did therapy with you 40 percent of the time i said i'm gonna be here <laughs> i'm fired yeah and they're like oh god yes i'm like so why is it okay for them they have a 92 percent re-election rate and a 19 percent approval rate it's literally backwards that's why I support Andrew Yang. That's why I support progressives. They challenge us. That's why I support Bernie Sanders. I think Rokana. you're, I think you're hitting balls. the nail on the head that people whose moral leanings are progressive and people whose moral leanings are conservative, we're always going to exist. But we also mostly make up the common class and common americans today can sense deeply that the elite donor class doesn't care about our well-being uh, that they're out to keep their pockets lined they want to make sure the i think the last thing i said about them was that they've earned their wealth and they feel like they've earned it and most of them to be absolutely honest have earned it there are some cheats there are always some cheats but most of them earn it fair and square uh, i think elon musk and jeff bezos are actually two great examples of american entrepreneur uh, bill gates i think they're great examples of american entrepreneurism uh, entrepreneurism but the the managers the people that manage their funds and and maybe some of the family members of their executives and then these elite families that tend not to make a lot of waves so we don't know their names they feel like they've earned their position in society and they're going to do all they can to keep it as society burns as as we fight each other in the streets they're going to hire private guards and fly to small islands uh, i think that's i think that's their attitude is that they don't think that they need to be part of the solution but they just want to be certain that the problem doesn't spill onto their accounts. They, they know there's a problem. They just don't care because it doesn't affect them. Kind of mm. like COVID, right? Mm. No one cares about COVID until someone in their death in their family or a teacher at their school or their, their neighbor, you know, or someone that they work with until it affects them directly. Like, I know people that still think COVID is a hoax after they lost family members. And I'm like, now you are truly 
occult member. Oh my gosh! Like so if, you're, hard. if you're that blind, so yeah, hard. I'm like wow. Mm-hmm. What do we? I mean, I'm wrestling daily, wrestling with the fact that so many millions, millions of Americans believe in their heart of hearts that this election has been stolen. They really believe it. They aren't making it up. They aren't unreasonable. They really believe that Joe Biden has corruptly and evilly stolen the American presidency. Yeah. Well, and there's other people literally doing the opposite of that for Trump. Like today, literally, or uh, 9 p.m. last night, I actually just saw this article where to go, where the Texas courts just denied uh, a lawsuit from the Trump campaign to allow, uh, not from the Trump, it's a lawsuit from the Texas uh governor or representative i can't remember his name like gore gourmet or something like that he was saying that we're gonna propose we're gonna uh, propose alternate uh delegates don't worry that we agreed to delegates six months ago don't worry about that we're gonna put some new ones in because we don't like what they what the voters say yeah and they're saying that we're gonna propose alternate delegates and according to the constitution the vice president can change them if he chooses to. And the judge, of course, threw it out and said, you can't, that's, you have no merit. You can't show that these, these delegates have damaged you in any way. There's no damages to be seek in a lawsuit. So how can you say you want to, you know, there's no legal standing, of course. It's all frivolous BS uh, theater at this point. But they're still trying to literally steal it with lawsuits. When I heard, uh, the vice president debates with, oh, what's his name? Geriatric Kendall. What's his name? Uh, Pence. <laughs> Pence. Yeah, Pence. I call Pence the geriatric Kendall. He looks like he's like an animated Kendall to me that grew up and got old. Um, Calls and, and I'm not trying mother. To... <laughs> he's an odd dude. Mother doesn't... The mother's, odd. mother's an odd thing to call your wife. Yeah. And to not be allowed to talk to other women in a room without her there is also... A weird dynamic they have, uh, but I digress. Uh, but yeah, so during the VP debate, he goes, "This election will be decided in the courts." So I'm like, "You piece of shit." Jeez. That's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution says we the people. Elections are decided the- in the ballot box, not in the courts. Yeah. Now here's my thing. I always tell people too, and they say, "Well, don't you think this stuff should be investigated? All, all viable grievances should be looked into a hundred percent." But you can't help but notice that uh, the Trump administration is one in 59. They've lost 59 times in a row. They've won one case where someone mishandled them, something mis- a mishandling on the on the chain of command, if you will. So they threw out like 3,000 votes in a state in Pennsylvania. They lost about like 300,000. You know, uh, and I'm like, yes, every bit of fraud should be investigated on every election, all fraud, including business, including taxes, President Trump. Should be investigated. Let's be consistent. I think. Yes, I think election, op, election opposers, people who oppose this election, the stop the steal people. I think they have a a truth problem in that when you have this amount of facts and you have this amount of work that would have to be done to confirm your suspicion. So if you're a stop the stealer, 
you suspect, deeply suspect and believe that this election has legitimately been stolen. That's true for you. I understand. Yeah. I understand. That's in science. That's the same thing, right? When you have a suspicion, you have a hypothesis. You perform an experiment to see if your hypothesis is correct. And if your yep. first 10 hypotheses come back with something different, you can keep going doing experiments because you have a gut feeling that this thing that you think is true is true and you can keep searching for it and so that's the truth problem that i think stop the stealers have is that they have this deep feeling that this election has been stolen and they're just looking 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 for that confirmatory evidence and they can look forever because the election hasn't been stolen but that doesn't stop them from looking they'll just keep looking and keep saying it's been stolen it's been stolen what's going to happen on january 6th i don't know i can't wait January what do you, what do you think? 6th is Georgia, but January 20th is when the fireworks are really going to pop. Really? Why 20th? Mm-hmm. That's when the president does his, uh, that's when Biden gets sworn in. That's inauguration day. You think that's when the Stop yeah. the Steelers are going to, what do you think they're going to do? Oh, man. Either they're going to shit their pants in silence, or they're going to protest for a while to make mm. a name for themselves a little bit, maybe. Mm. I doubt the National Guard would be needed, but there'd be a couple hot spots like Michigan. We have these psychopaths that want to kidnap our governor and hold her on trial for That's treason right. in Wisconsin in Michigan. via via ferry boats. I mean, good God, these people are insane. They what? just don't live in reality. I want to go back to your point, though, about scientific evidence, right? Mm-hmm. So let's, I always default to scientific method. That's how we find truth mm-hmm. in the scientific objective world, truth. in nature. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, no, no, not objective because um, we don't know absolute truths ever. Well, objective truth always... isn't absolute truth. Ob- well, there's, yeah, that's true. There, that's there's a, a distinction between objective truth and moral truth that I draw for scientific investigation. Ob- yes. Scientific investigation can gain us some agreement about the description of the world that we individually perceive. Um, but it can't. But it can't gain us agreement about what the next set of actions should be. Uh, science, right, science right. doesn't get us there. Yeah, I'm a big one on scientific methods. So first rules of scientific method must be observable, Mm. repeatable, verifiable, and disqualifiable. It has to be easily proven wrong as well. It has to be falsifiable. That's the word I was thinking of, falsifiable. So that's that whole teacup thing. You know, like I'm telling you right now, I have a gut feeling that there's a teacup revolving around Mars, Mm. and you can't prove it's not there. Mm. And I'm going to believe it until you provide evidence that you've looked at every square inch of Mars's elliptical orbits to prove there isn't a teacup. But and these guys are saying, I have a gut feeling that it's been stolen, but yep. you have no evidence. Yep. There's no observable evidence. It's not measurable. I have a gut feeling that I'm a millionaire. I can't find evidence of it in my <laughs> bank account. So yeah, what? That's true. And these are coming from the people that are the F your feelings people. Yeah. Trump's your president. That's true. Your feelings. That's true. And then they—it's just such, such a mental gymnastics. I thought about making like mental gymnastic medals, like Olympic medals, and just handing them out. Like here's your medal. Kind of like that one comedian had Sorry to. About here's him. your sign. That's all right. That one comedian, uh, Bill Ingvall, from the uh, I can't remember what it's called. I call it the Hillbilly Elegy Comedy Tour. Blue, blue collar comedy? Blue collar. There you go. Yeah, yeah. This is the country people, right? And so he had a thing called Here's Your Sign. You say something stupid. He was like, you know, <laughs> he was, uh, I remember one of his bits that made me laugh probably the hardest is when he's like, his car's locked. He has a hanger. He's trying to unlock his car mm-hmm. in a parking lot at like a Home Depot. And the guy goes, 
lock your keys in your car? He goes, nope, I thought I'd just hang her up to dry after it rained. You know, like, here's your sign. <laughs> you know, uh, and to me, saying some of these silly things, like, I have a gut feeling, but I don't have evidence, or we there's, there's proof that there's been um, systemic fraud, but we can't find the evidence yet. I'm like, what? What an oxymoron. What, yeah. what a silly statement that the press secretary for the, for the president says that his stupid uh, lawyer says, we have proof. We just can't find the evidence. What? <laughs> That's come on, man. That's like saying we have fire. We can't find smoke. Get real. I think that the commitment um, to hard evidence might might bear us for a while because I'm, I'm thinking now that we're entering a, a time that's more reminiscent of religious wars than it is of, mm. of what you would think of the age what we thought the age of information might be. So people Boy. can mm -hmm. choose to believe anything. And it's important to understand that we all do choose our beliefs. You choose your beliefs. You choose to believe mm -hmm. whatever you believe. And so in an age in which we can choose to believe very, very different things, um, mutually exclusive phenomenon and mutually exclusive claims and and look for that evidence and find that evidence as long as we commit to continuing the search for the evidence before we make objective truth claims i think we might be carried a long way even as neighbors have wildly disparate claims about what's true in the nation uh, they can at yeah. least agree about what's true in their neighborhood they can at least agree about what's true in their city um yeah i think that might might think that might carry us for a while but I tell you, we're, it's, it's kind of a religious, a new religious era, right? You can, you can believe that this election was stolen. At this point, believing that is the same as believing Jesus was born in a manger. It's the same thing. You can believe yeah. it. It's a beautiful belief. It has, it has resonance for you in your culture and in your social circle. I'm not saying you shouldn't believe it. I'm just saying take responsibility for choosing what you believe outside of objective evidence. Yeah. And that's where, you know, you'll lose people that you demand evidence for a claim. A, a, big, a huge claim just, uh, requires bigger evidence. That's huge right. Evidence, Chris Hitchens, you know? yeah. Yeah, man. Oh, boy. If he was alive. If Chris Hitchens and George Carlin were alive today, oh, my. What's some of your favorite uh, Chris or Sam or anybody from oh, that man. crew? There's a whole group of things. There's a whole group of videos called Hitch Slaps. Okay. Uh, where he bitch slaps people with facts. And he was in a church um, debating the cardinal of something in um, in England, and he let him have it. You know, he's like, how dare you tell me that my friend is going to go to hell because he because of his sexual preference? How dare you tell him that he's going to go to hell while your pedophiles and, and your clergy uh, continue to hurt and injure young people? Mm. How And he just went off. I can't remember it all because... It was a it was a monologue of of disdain, but Hitchens is he's he's one of my like role models when it comes to debate. Like just be vicious and consistent, um, mm. and have some humanity in there. But he he had lost towards the end. He had he had gotten nicer, but boy, back when he was smoking and drinking at the same time while he's doing it, holy Jesus, he was vicious. And I, I just love the fact that he would just call it as it is in front of their faces on their turf. It's kind of like how I feel here in Southwest Michigan, where I'm making these claims about Andrew Yang and about progressive policies in the belly of the beast of Trump territory. I, I kind of feel like we have that kindred spirit where I'm like, I feel like Hitchens on a debate stage in a, in a Catholic church mm -hmm. 
in England where it's the state religion, you know, and <laughs> uh, I feel like Trumpism is a state religion in Southwest Michigan where it's everyone I know. I say about 80% of people I know directly are Trump supporters and lifelong conservatives. And mm. yet here I am. And, and 90% of the people I know are religious of some sort. Um, I even actually did podcasts with my own kids and talked to them about it and ask them about religion and belief. Oh, so cool. like, what do you, what do you guys believe? Mm. And mm. one of my four kids says I'm atheist. The other three had some sort of beliefs of some sort and they have no real reasons behind it but we talked about it and i recorded it and put it out there because people ask how do you talk to your kids so i said oh, you know what that sounds like a cool idea mm. let me do it you know and uh, i don't try to control my kids how they think i'm just trying to tell them how to think and that's mm. what we're lacking in society and in school honestly our schools aren't teaching people to think they're teaching them to regurgitate and that's what we need more today than ever. Uh, we thought that the age of information would make us all instant geniuses, uh, but it's actually done the reverse. It's confused us to a degree that we could not have anticipated. Having all the information at your fingertips just means you're right back to square one about knowing what's objectively true. You still have to yeah. do the hard work. You still have to ask the right questions, and you still have to persist. You still have to go to sleep with unanswered questions and wake up with unanswered questions. <laughs> uh, that's that's the case more now than ever, and we just we couldn't have seen that coming, but being able to think as you're teaching your children is so primary and i really commend you for doing that mm -hmm. and it's not easy because like my oldest uh his stepson he i asked him because he used to be atheistic too so he's like i don't see evidence like my grandpa died and and how is that god's plan and he had all these questions i'm like you know what mm -hmm. dude i i hear you and i don't have the answers man i don't see a divine plan i don't see anything divine about death at all mm -hmm. of any sort why is death necessary Mm. You know, so I don't see it's divine. Death and suffering is not divine. Being hungry, if you're a, a supreme being, why do we have to feel hunger? Why is pain a necessary sensory organ? Why is that there? Mm. You know, like, why shouldn't life be pleasurable? Why shouldn't every touch and smell bring us pleasure? Why do I gag if I smell vomit? Mm. Why are these necessary? It's not because of creation. It's because of evolution, you know? Um, and so I challenge my kids with these kind of things. And and he, and he I asked Caleb, my oldest one, Caleb, I was like, so what made you start believing in, in a higher power and a creator type of thing? And he's like, well, I was at a bowling alley. I was like, what? Well, that's like a strange turn. But I think just God can strike at a bowling alley. Well, if you believe that, yeah, sure. You could also strike in a cancer ward and stop giving people cancer, you know, like. It's it's a uh, it's so convenient sometimes. I should I should err on being facetious. You couldn't see the the <laughs> eyebrow that I had raised. Uh, <laughs> a little sarcasm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little uh, was that well? Yeah. Uh, half and half, half sarcasm, half not. Uh, I'm a Sam Harris follower. I was an atheist. I don't okay. call myself an atheist today uh, because mm -hmm. I have a conception of God that I'm comfortable using in conversation or, or mm -hmm. at least a description. So I refer to God as the infinite origin of things. And so if we exist, we exist more than likely because there was something that existed before us. Because if there was truly nothing, if you can imagine the concept of nothing, right, nothing, right. nothing, then nothing can come from that because there's nothing there for anything to come from truly nothing and so in order for there to be anything 
there has to first be something. This physical universe is a real thing. It had to come from some field or some energy, or maybe it's always been here, but even it always being here means it exists in some greater reality, right? There, there's some greater reality outside of this, this universe. Otherwise, this couldn't be here. Otherwise, we couldn't be here having this conversation. So there's, And what we see with our eyes, um, I think scientifically we understand this, that it's a approximation of what's actually happening in the universe, right? What the, the photons that strike your eyes are a delayed representation of what where that photon may have come from according to some trajectory. And the same with every other sense organ you have. And so what we sense directly as this orb floating around another burning orb and, and all the stars and all the things that we that we understand objectively true about this physical universe that's just our sense of it and i think dark matter dark energy uh quantum tunneling right all these phenomena that we're that we're getting that we're encroaching upon scientifically the cosmic uh, background of the universe i think all these phenomena show us that there's more than likely something from which this universe comes that we can't accurately describe or interpret or, or detect. Uh, and I'm comfortable calling that God, aside from well, with, see, the, with all the other religious claims. I refuse to use the their terms things. on – I refuse to use those terms because it normalizes their language. Well, see, I call it our language. I don't call well, it theirs. Well, God is a – Christian, Judeo-Christian, let's put that way, an Abrahamic term. Okay, so not God, not specifically, yeah, not specifically the monotheistic God. So I guess, uh, thank you for pointing that out. I'm not using that term. I'm using the term God as that word in English resonates in our human psychology. And so if you go Mm -hmm. to Buddhists, if you go to Hindu, if you go to Jains, if you go to any group, any person, the concept of God and what God means, the the transcendence that that term evokes is what I'm using. And I'm using it in a, in a human way, not in a specific monotheistic Judeo-Christian way. Well, I would I would even challenge to just say creator, some kind of a creator, a, a supernatural creator. But because... creator mm-hmm. personifies it. Creator it, assumes it, intelligence it, to it, assumes something it, like a human personality to it. Well, not necessarily human. It's just that's the only thing we relate to. But it puts a personality on it if you say creator. I don't think God even yeah. contains the idea of a personality. I just think it contains no, the idea of, of transcendence. If So for me, I love these conversations, first of all. Mm-hmm. I love mm-hmm. this. So the idea of something gives it personification. Uh, but to create this, whatever this is... Um, you know, we don't know what we are. We This is what we observe. Like, technically... You're talking about the photons. We only see the past. We never see the present. Mm-hmm. Everything you see is a delayed reaction, a delayed sensory input of something that happened just a second ago. Mm-hmm. Like nothing is instantaneous unless it's touching your eye, you know, like. Um, so I like those types of contests where always like you look in the sky, you see a supernova with the with the telescope, but it happened 75 million years ago. We're just now seeing it happen. Mm, mm. So that might not even be there anymore. And that's why, like, my kids asked me about aliens and stuff. I was like, you know, let's look at the size of the observable universe we have right now. So let's say there is another Earth-like place that has Earth-like um, evolutionary challenges in the same time scale at the exact same time. So it's very likely, statistically likely, this is happening somewhere else in the universe somewhere. 
The problem is distance. If it's happening 80 million light years away, this planet will be gone. Our sun, or 80 billion, I'm sorry. Our sun will go out and this planet will be absorbed by the red giant. It's over. And then by the time we sent a message to them and they received it, and then they processed it and sent one back, we don't even exist anymore. I think so the likelihood of aliens existing as we consider aliens like uh carbon based life forms that we understand is is very likely to be happening all over the universe we'll just never know because time is not our friend that's the one resource we can't control yet um so that's why I tell my kids like the likelihood of us knowing is very slim and the only way it's going to happen is someone else has higher technology to uh, to uh, eliminate time and distance as the major hurdle for, for making connections across the galaxy. It's so big. Uh, it's going to take a, a, a technology that we don't even have access to yet. Um, yeah, like and that before movie... we get there, we'll be yeah. uh, multi-planetary, hopefully have a Dyson sphere. It'll be a while before <laughs> before we go interstellar, yeah. uh, interstellar, intergalactic. Right. We'd have to. We have to, to survive as a as a as a as a uh, species, mm. as a culture. To to we we can't stay here forever because this isn't forever. This is cyclical. My moral north so... star is humans. Humans everywhere. Uh, yeah. What do you think yep. of that? Do you think that's reasonable? Um, maybe some variations. You know, mm-hmm. like um, think about the movie Avatar, one of my favorite movies. It shows how humanoid things can evolve in other environments, mm. um, with predators, with prey, with um, plants that communicate in different ways we don't understand. Like, uh, I, I like that concept of human-like, humanoid-like, but it's think about before us if the meteor didn't hit the planet we would have lizard based life forms mm. reptilians so maybe there'd be a reptilian type of human we don't know mm. now that'd be gnarly you know like if we never had the the big hit and it, the mass extinction of the uh uh what the hell's that air i can't remember the name of the uh the prehistoric term anyway um if we didn't have that mass extinction event would we have had another like? Would the planet continue to get warm? Would we had another ice age? You know, we just don't know. Hmm. But it's all those things are plausible. Like, well, my argument is for a continuance of Homo sapiens sapiens of humans, us specifically, our species, our oh oh uh, our, yeah. yeah evolution. Well, yeah, us just a continuation yes. of us, and and that's my that's my moral north star. I'm a human chauvinist i'm not for the bees simply to be for the bees i'm not for the whales simply to be for the whales i'm for the bees and the whales and the forest to the extent that we don't know that once we knock one of those dominoes over what cascade comes back to kill us so i'm all for protecting the environment but i'm not for protecting the environment for the environment's sake uh if there weren't human beings here i could care less right if you've got some planet with all sorts of species on it and all sorts of stuff on it that's that's nice and there's no human life there, uh, I would be sympathetic to the argument that we shouldn't just kill all the life there in order to take the, I don't know, diamond from the second layer of its crust or graphene or whatever, yeah. whatever resources underneath all that life. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, there's no need to be cruel, but I wouldn't 
be I wouldn't outright be outright against that for the sake of that species because I think that our especially if we needed it right if if it were if there were some planet covered in in animal life and flower life and all the life you can imagine outside of humans and all of it seemed to be very even some of it was even ape like right where they're even advanced animals they obviously recognize their kin and their family I would be sympathetic to an argument that says if we destroy all these organisms in order just to attain their ultra precious resources on the next level of their of their planet, uh, that would be a cruel, terrible, horrible thing to do and it would cause a lot of suffering. I hear that. But if we were going to die, if it was our survival or theirs, wipe them out. That's how I feel about it. Oh, Avatar-esque, right? You're pro. Well, in Avatar, those humans were not on the risk. Those humans were not on the risk of survival. Uh, or, or were they? It's been so long. <laughs> I haven't yeah. seen Avatar in forever. To out. Were they going to die? Pisses, this nothing that pisses me off about 2020 is Avatar's second movie supposed to come out on Christmas Day this year. What? And they pushed it back to 2021. I don't know. I don't know. Were the humans going to die in Avatar? Was that the question? They were going to die? It doesn't in seem like it. It doesn't seem like my it, memory is that they were just getting it because it was worth a lot of money. Yeah, because it's some kind of a rare element. Yeah, yeah. So in you that know, case, no, you don't kill a bunch of things just because you're going to make a bunch of money. But if your right. survival, if it's literally our species or theirs, I'm going to well, choose our Darwinism, species every time. Yeah. Then yeah. it's pure. It, uh, that's evolution. That's Darwinism. That's survival. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it's just like water. You know, will this tribe kill this other tribe to survive? Yes, they will. Yeah. And they do. And they will. And if they the do it now. resources become scarce enough. In places that are, yeah, water scarcity in, yeah. in sub-Saharan Africa or, or, or places like that where we have put wells in places, then they have tribal wars because of this resource we introduced. Jeez. And all of a sudden, that's something we're fighting over. You know, uh, and that's the have and the have-nots, if you will. Hmm. Uh, where hmm. it's so extreme that... You have a tribe over here that wasn't lucky enough that this guy who owned a sneaker company decided to build a well. You know, like it's so trivial lucky, and man. yet life changing yeah. and worth fighting over water. How how is that? I don't uh, that really baffles me. Seventy five percent of this planet is covered in water, but we're not going to try and push science to somehow desalinate that, and make it livable, drinkable water. Yet Congress is going to do everything we can to research. Uh, erectile dysfunction i mean come on now i heard in the earlier part in the early part of the 20th century that the feds did uh get a hold of a patent of a desalinization machine here in california and then sold it to some other country and then they put the patent in a lock vault and nobody's figured it out since i don't know that that's true i'm not saying that that's true but i heard that yeah. Uh, I don't do conspiracy theories because yeah. yeah, sure. I mean that's like, a that's well, a rumor. A carburetor, you know, that can do a hundred miles per yeah, gallon, and, yeah. and Ford bought it. I'm I don't like, think okay, there's anything well. wrong with with mentioning a rumor that you've heard. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes sure. they're true. <laughs> sometimes, Rare, uh, rarely. But, it, but admit sometimes. that it's a rumor. Admit that it's a rumor. Don't claim mm -hmm. to know. You just you just say I heard this. You, you know yeah. who's you know who's adept at doing that? DJT. Uh, oh, this guy. He Fun never though. knows anything. Everything, <laughs> everything he well, says is a rumor. Yeah, he's like, you know, I don't know. Maybe we'll see. They told me this is what they told me. They told me that da, 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 da. this is what I heard. Jeez, Louise, how did you become did president? You hear about it? Did you hear about it? I've, I've heard things. Yeah, I. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. So, who the hell are they? Alex Jones? I mean, come on, man. 
dude, Alec he's going to be brother. there. He's going to be there on the six. Alex Jones. Yeah, as far as I know, I saw an advertisement. I don't know. I I think he's going to the DC one. They're going to have a rally. It's, it should be pretty big. I'm on Parlor every day. I go to Parlor every morning. Oh, see, I I started on Parlor and I just just didn't want to waste my time. It's, I just didn't feel like it was a good place for me to be. It's it's. I, I tell you, I go there. I don't I don't spend very long there, uh, but I do make it a point pretty much every day to start my day there. So the first <laughs> thing I look at is parlor, parlor headlines. Yeah. Because I really, you know, I'm so inundated with liberal. I'm so inundated with far left truth claims. I have yeah. to intentionally peer out of my bubble. It's kind of it's uh-huh. kind of like opening a opening a, a a sliver in a bubble just to breathe in some air, and then you close it and you go back into your comfortable little space. Uh, yeah. That's that's kind of what it feels like. Now I understand that some some in my bubble say, you know, the air out there is toxic. <laughs> You shouldn't be doing that. But here I am. Here I am trying to pierce my own bubble to breathe in some of these ideas that don't exist in my bubble. Uh, I don't know, as an attempt at diversity. Really, my attempt is as a, is at unification. Uh, and I understand. Mm-hmm. I understand the the calls of hypocrisy that come that I see a lot on Parler uh, that accuse the left of being hypocritical when it calls for unity because they say mm-hmm. and and I don't like the phrase the left either, but this is the phrase they use to make these accusations. Yeah. Uh, they say, oh, the left is being hypocritical because the left is calling for unity now. Meanwhile, the left never accepted our presidency. For one, the left? What are you talking about? 80, 100 million people? What do you think we're all the same? <laughs> there are a lot yeah. of people on the left that did not uh, say that it was over. I'm actually in the Dave Chappelle camp. So Dave Chappelle, when he went on Saturday Night Live, said, look, Mr. Trump. We don't like you. We think you're a liar. We think you're a pussy grabber, and we don't think you're we don't think you're fit for office. But you're in now, so mm-hmm. your fate is tied to our fate. So do well, do right. That's the camp yeah. I was in, right? I don't mm-hmm. like Donald Trump. I never liked Donald Trump. I don't think he should have ever been president. But once he won, fair and square, the electoral college complain about it if you like. He won the election according to the rules at the time. He got into the office. Okay, yeah. now your fate is our fate, you know. And I was. I was actually excited about the hard strike that he took against Syria, against their weapons capacity. When he when he did that targeted strike at the Syrian, I think it was a was an air base. Uh, I was for that. I was for that. I said, you know what? That was a good move. And maybe this guy DJT, maybe he's going to be the adept businessman deal maker that so many claimed he would be. But then he started calling uh, Kim Jong Un. Uh, Little rocket man. And I said, okay, now he's going to start a nuclear war. I'm done with this guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I liked his first action. I don't like this second action. I haven't liked pretty much anything he's done since then. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I got on Parler just really just to be a little asshole, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I made a a video that I took this old 2 Live Crew um, uh, sample. It says, get the F out of my house is the name of song. Get the nice. F out. And so I took that and I looped it and I uh, took some video of Trump walking out of rooms and stuff like that and kind of timed him up and just made a funny little video. And at the end, it showed Joe Biden and, and Obama in a limousine, them leaning over, kind of winking at each other, smiling. Mm-hmm. And it says, uh, uh, DM me or send me your snap and I'll give you the Addy to the new party. I got oh a house on party. <laughs> and I don't like joe biden but it's still just like 
<laughs> it's like kryptonite. They get like, it's triggering people, you know. Uh, nah, I don't but like yeah, nobody. parlor. Okay, so January, so January fifth is the election in Georgia. Mm. January sixth is when the RNC takes a vote, mm. and I can't remember exactly what the uh, reasoning is. It's like their national like kind of convention, if you will, after the, the the elections are over. Okay, I think that's to do with like Mitch McConnell if he's going to be the majority leader or something. I can't remember, uh, but. Uh, God dang it, I can't remember exactly what the details are, but January 6th is a big deal for the Republicans. Mm. So pretty much it's going to be, are you guys going to side and let Mitch McConnell lead you, or are you going to let Trump lead you from Twitter? Mm. And it's going to be one of those big things, and they're going to, of course, they're going to protest in Washington because they know they're going to lose in Georgia. That's what I feel like. They, they know they're going to lose. Mm. And they're preparing to go to Washington and make a big stink. Um, I think the 6th is also with the Electoral College is finalized in the senate i believe and okay. the, the vice president has a, i have to look that up but but yeah i i parlor interesting yeah, yeah. alex jones actually yeah. campaigned for donald trump on the trail yeah I, mean, I, is... I like i like alex jones personally just as a rogan fan right i've spent the enough hours with alex to know that he's a well-intentioned guy he means well i don't Ooh, i don't think so bro i don't think i so. think he means well i think he means well i don't think he's well. doing it well i don't think his i don't think his meaning well and his acting well are in accordance i think he's acting poorly uh and i would i i don't i disapprove to the extent that one plebeian in southern california can approve of anything uh, I disapprove of his actions. I don't think he's responsible with his words in the public space by any stretch. Uh, but I, I think he's a nice guy, nice enough guy. So what good intent do you give him then? What is your good intent? Um, I like... think that from his subjective perspective, I think this is this is how Alex looks at the world. He says, he says people are so, he probably starts off with people are, a lot of people are dumb. There are a lot of dumb people out there. I think a lot of philosophies start with that. They say most, you know, half the people are dumb. And of course, it's not the half that I agree with. It's the half that I disagree with that are just idiots. Right. Um, and I think he starts there and then he says, but I care about these people as humans, as people, and they deserve to know the truth. And that's what I'm going to do. So I think he is an ally in terms of the subjective pursuit of truth. I don't think he's getting it right. <laughs> I, I don't think he's getting the truth right. But I think from his subjective perspective, he says this world has too many dumb people and too many smart people that aren't taking action. I'm going to wake people up by bringing the truth to their ears. Uh, and I think that he thinks he's succeeding in doing that. Gosh, I have the opposite uh, view of him is like, I feel like he knows people are stupid and believe anything you tell them. If you play to their fears, if you play to their agenda, hmm. and he's just, how do I make money off these ignorant people? And he's doing it. He's made a living off of it just by spouting conspiracy theories and, you know, saying just some of the oddest things. Well, and he thinks the stuff is true. I don't you, think he does. You don't think he, he does. So, so you think he's operating well, in bad faith? Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Because in his own court proceedings, when he's getting divorced, he had to admit in court that what he says in there is uh, is an act. It's, it's a performative art. Really? It's not the truth. Yeah, because mm. he was going through divorce proceedings. His wife's like, he is dangerous for our kids' well-being. I want full custody mm. with supervised visitation. I don't want him filling their heads full of 
of of crazy propaganda that makes them ostracized in society and it's a danger to their mental and physical health. I didn't know anything about what he put out in court. Yeah, he put it out in court. That's a whole f- yeah. Look, just Google that bad boy. Mm. And he it comes up to his like testimony and says that no, it's it's, it's I play a character. Mm. This is not my actual thoughts. Kind of like Scientology had to do in court where their their founder, not a uh, Mormonism, sorry, Mormons. Uh, what's his name? John Smith or Joseph Smith? Mm. He admitted in court he's being sued, and he admitted in court that no, I made it all up. Oh wow! And yet people still believe. Yeah, I really dig into religions and beliefs. I, I'm a big. I just love to learn about these things and poke holes in them. You know, That's how what did it is you come to debating? How did that transition happen for you? You said you were raised Catholic. I think. How did you go? No, uh, fundamentalist. I was raised in a fundamentalist uh, Pentecostal. Fundamentalist home, like, Pentecostal. Don't. Yeah. Don't cutting you your hair if you're a girl. One to the other. Yeah. Extreme. Yeah, and my my grandmother was a preacher. Mm. Is the preacher that you know the church people, and I just was always born a skeptic, man. I've always looked at it and been like, wait a minute, you think that this was all made in seven days, mm. and you think that like the book of Exodus, where the story of Exodus with uh, Moses is taking his people out of e- people out of Egypt and out of servitude and all that stuff, and I was like, wait a minute, you think they walked through the desert with no food and water for forty days and didn't die? Mm. that's not that's not possible because as soon as i was old enough to understand science you know like middle school like 12 i was like huh and i've never prayed i've never kneeled down and closed my eyes and thought someone's listening you know like Mm. i've never had that feeling or that urge or that presence if you call it that Mm. i was never delusional to myself to even think that something else is in the room with me you know and like I remember being at like a church revival, which is a big Pentecostal thing in the summer. They'll pitch a tent in the middle of a field and have like five or six different church come to one place and have a big old shindig. Uh, They have like church three times a day kind of thing. It's like a a tailgate for religious people. Um, And so I'm there and every single person got up, walked up front, kneeled down and started praying together. And I'm the only person sitting in a pew going, what the hell is this? this mm. you know and my grandma came up and says come up here and pray i was like no my mom come over here she's like tears in her eyes praying oh jesus god and this and that or whatever mm. she's like come pray with us i'm like i no, i'm good mm. wow i always refuse wow I'm like no i'm good dude that's Even that's, that's like such a, like a eight hard scenario i i mean ju- i'm just imagining i'm just imagining being yeah, a boy disobeying yep. your mother and your grandmother in the height of emotionality Yep. In the height never, of their belief. I never felt anything. I'm mm. like, what are you guys talking? Don't you feel the presence of the Holy Spirit? I'm like, no. <laughs> like, no. And I've always been just skeptical of the whole thing. And then plus my my experience, you know, with religion is those are the same people I go back home after church and they they have children that are pedophiles or they are deviants, mm. if you want to call it that, or they're like the the preacher's daughter, this other church, the preacher's daughter ran away with a guy to Mecca, to mm. Texas and got mm. pregnant at fifteen. And I'm like, these people are disasters. They they I saw through this facade of the Sunday best, you know, the clothing. That's the nicest clothing they have because they're all poor, just like us. Mm. Why are they putting on this show? I don't know. I've always been skeptical, man. Always. I've never prayed, and um, so then 
by the time I got to middle school, I had a cousin. I can't remember her name, which is kind of sad, but she was like seven and I was like 10. And she got an inoperable, untreatable brain tumor. And she was going to wither and die. There's no way around it. Mm. And so everyone I knew prayed. Every single person I knew mm. was praying for her to this and that, let, let God heal her and lay hands and all this stuff. Um, and I remember at her funeral, I'm like, well, that didn't work. Like, why? Mm. It says in the Bible that God can do all things. Then why didn't he? Mm. And my grandma's like, well, you know, God needed another ain't God has a, a higher purpose or he has a plan. I'm like, well, why did you pray for it then? Yeah, you know, that's that's like, one of the principles that that allowed me or, or actually pushed me away from religious thinking was when I encountered the fact, the the ever present fact that religious people always justify the actions of their gods, no matter how terrible, no matter yep. how wonderful, no matter how inopportune, no matter how opportune for you and terrible for someone else. It doesn't matter across the board, no matter what happens, they always say invariably God's will is mysterious. Well, that's an answer for everything. That's not a way to to really pursue objective truth. Uh, and you encountered that in a hard and painful way. Yeah. And that was reality, man. That was not a concept. Mm. That happened. Every single person I knew prayed and nothing changed. Then I said, then I asked my grandmother. I was like, why pray? I was like 12. I remember that when her funeral happened, I was 12. I was in sixth grade, seventh grade, I mean. And, and then I was like, just distraught. I'm like, why did she have to die? It doesn't make sense. Why would a God do this? This doesn't, she did nothing to anyone. She's not bad. Why do good people die? Hmm. Type of thing, you know, and she just didn't have any good answers. Uh, she just had the whole, it's let it be God's will kind of thing. Then I asked her, I was like, so why pray in the first place? So if this is true, it's a good then question. I started using, then I started using if in my sentences. And that's the, that's the, that's the, uh, what do you say? The first strike, if you will, the first oh, chink in the armor. It became armor. illogical. A little, little logic yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, if, if, if God has predetermined this to happen today, then what you prayed for isn't in His plan, divine plan. Then why pray for it all? You know, like why are we praying? Just let things be. It is what it is. Fate becomes more logical than anything else. Mm. It's predeterminism, you know, but I didn't know what that meant. I just had questions. And then I heard George Carlin. I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's like in my brain. Like he's he's bringing about these same questions I had just made me laugh about it. Hmm. And that's how he was. And it's just so good. And so well, just comedy is often then, the vanguard of truth. Yeah. Well, then I kind of started looking at all religious beliefs and all my friends. I went to my other friends' churches and stuff and. You know, I went to Catholic Church. I went to Protestant, Methodist, and uh, all these different things. And, and then, I, then what really got me thinking about questioning everything was Seventh Day Adventist and Jehovah Witnesses hmm. that I had known. And I was like, "Wait a minute! So you guys are Jehovah Witnesses, and according to you guys, the twelve tribes are all going to get uh, was it twelve thousand people per tribe is going to go into heaven? That's only one hundred forty-four thousand people that go to heaven." The other billion of us, seven billion, are going to die, and we don't get to come to heaven. Mm. And they said, not the upper level. I was like, what? Who who picked 12,000? Where'd this number come from? Yeah. You know, like, I was like, well, that's just silly. That was one and of the things to, that pushed me away from Christianity mm -hmm. and my family was that once it became clear to me, uh, I guess at about a similar age, that 
Buddhist and Hindus, no matter how moral and loving and generous they were, didn't get to go to heaven. I started to go, hmm, I don't know that I, I don't know that I buy that. I don't know that I buy that. But- oh, nice. Buddhism is about as inclusive as you can be to mm. me. Um, but you're saying actually, you're you're uh, you're encountering Jehovah's Witnesses about the thousand people. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, no, no that 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 was made me question. That made me dismiss their entire faith. I'm like, that's just mm. dumb. There's no evidence to support this hundred forty four thousand. There were twelve tribes in the Old Testament. Yes, twelve thousand per tribe. Where the hell did you get that number from? You know, they they had a way of, of mental gymnastics to do it. But I was like, that's not a lot. That's a lot of, lot, lot of leaps of faith, if you will, mm. to make that make sense. And then as Seventh-day Adventist, my girlfriend's a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, and I had friends as Seventh-day Adventist. And I was like, wait a minute. So you guys observed the Sabbath on Saturday? And they said, like, well, no, Friday night at dusk. We have to be home or be at church. It's got to be all things God until sunset on Saturday, until Sunday morning or something like that. Hmm. Um, I'm like, okay. I was like, but Sabbath. They said, yeah, well, technically all the Christians go to, all the other Christians go to Sunday. They observe Sabbath on Sunday, but Sunday is not Sabbath. The Latin word for Sabbath is Sabado, which is Saturday. Hmm. Sabado is Sabbath, which is Saturday. Saturday is the Sabbath. I'm like, that makes sense. Hmm. Hmm. Then I said, wait a minute. So if it's only Saturday, only the Sabbath, and it's only a seven day a week calendar, that's a Julian calendar, then. How do people know what Sabbath was before that calendar was agreed upon? Mm, good question. Do all people yeah. prior to that get killed and they go to to, to hell forever because they because out of ignorance, or that the calendar is off at first? So they didn't count for that fourth of a day, three hundred sixty five point two five days a year. Like then everything's off, mm. and who decided today's the first Monday? You know what I mean? Like when they first made the first calendar, I looked into that's when the internet first started coming on. I started researching on like Googling things um, at the library, if you will, the Dewey Decimal System, you know, looking up uh, the history of the Julian calendar, like stuff like that. And I just was like enthralled. I was like, wait a minute. So one day they decided today's Monday. What if they're wrong? Then all you Seventh day Adventists are going to hell because you've never kept the Sabbath holy. You know, like, it just made me question everything. So then I wanted to know everything I could to slowly whittle them all down to nothingness. Because I can't prove there is no creator, right? There's, it's not physically possible. But I can prove your God doesn't exist. Just give me some details. That's all I need. That reminds me of when Dawkins said, you know, most of you are atheists with regards to 99.9% of the world's right. religions. I'm just atheist with regards to 100% of them. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't believe in one more than you. That's yeah. it. That's something I have disagreements with my friends on Facebook or whatever, that, or people I know in the community. They're like, well, how do you know that God didn't um, keep you safe while you're treating these COVID patients? You haven't gotten COVID. You've been treating them for 10 months. I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah. It's how you know God doesn't have a protective shield over you. I was like, how do you know it's not Zeus? Yep. I'm like, what? I'm like, how do you know it's not Zeus? What if it's Zeus? What if it's uh, Juju in the bottom of the ocean? Hmm. That's right. And I thought, going out gods they don't know, never heard of. Like, what? who says it's not Athena or Thor or Apollo or Saturn hmm. or Jupiter? Hmm. That's right. Who says it's not any of these other gods? That's right. They're like, Greek? Greek gods? I'm like, yeah, they said that's mythology. I'm like, it is now. 
but people live and died and went to war over it before, just like we do now. Greek was going against the uh, the Syrians and uh, what's the other empire? Uh, Ottomans. You know, it was ideological and resource driven. You know, they're all wanting to conquer to have all the control and power and the resources. Yeah, and resources. So I think, I think that that God, the concept of God and gods, is a psychological placeholder for the unknown. So I think that yeah. when we were apes and trees or, or something much more ape-like than we are now, talking about Lucy and her folks, when we were mm-hmm. walking the savannas, the idea of a storm cloud coming over a mountain range at one right. part of the year and then not at another, the idea of gods is the weather system, is the global weather system at that time. There's no way of comprehending the global weather system as an ape walking on the grassland, but whether the rains come or not is so important to your survival. You have to consider it deep and meaningful and you have to pay attention to yeah. it. And I think that God is, is that, that structure is that support scaffolding in our mind. And when it comes to resources, these are also things that are so important for our survival. And so naturally the two would be linked that when we talk about the things that are important for our psychological Manif- for, for our psychological survival and the things that are important for our physical survival resources land food shelter these things uh it's natural for the two to be linked and i think that what we're yeah and so i think that what we've done with the with science is we've pushed gods further and further away from those resources where we kind of know why the rain comes and why it doesn't we kind of know why the potatoes grow at this time of year and why they don't grow at another uh scientifically we know those things and so god's the concept of god has gone further and further to out into the edges of the universe so to speak or more or deeper into Mm -hmm. the atom so to speak and abstractly and psychologically but the resources are still there uh, and we're still we're still going to fight over the resources. Uh, we just might not fight for the gods, uh, but we will fight for ideas. I would think, uh, especially, and we we would kind of put ideas as rationalizations for why we fight. Right? Let's say let's say it's us uh, election believers versus us election non-believers, and there was actually only enough farmland to feed feed one group. Well. Going to war over the election seems like a good enough reason when, in fact, we're going to war over land and we're going for, to yeah. war over resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we fought a civil war in this country. Uh, and so I don't think I just I'm careful to not keep that type of war off the table because we're still humans. Uh, there are still people fighting every day. I saw a documentary a couple weeks ago about uh, ongoing war. I'm going to forget what country it's in, but it was two ethnic groups, the Eti and the something or another, and it's an African country, and they just continue to fight each other over these over these historical conflicts. Uh, and it wasn't even over resources. It was just hatred. It was just, we hate them so much because they killed my father and they killed my father. And the other side says it's true. We hate them so much. And their beliefs were slightly differently, but they just wanted a reason to fight. And I think that us Americans today in 2020 need to keep in our conscious mind the fact that we're still those animals. We may have a nation of 320 that's ostensibly civilized and peaceful, but we're still the animals that will kill each other over neighborhood strife. Uh, that's That was yep. true in my neighborhoods, uh, and so we, we just need to keep that in mind. And I think belief is so central to that, 
right? The, that religious belief, we can have religious wars today, although the religions may, may mask themselves. There are a lot of people that say that wokeness is a lot like a religion. Do you subscribe to that? Do you agree with that description? Do you disagree with it? Um, I, I would replace religion with like cult, mm. Mm. like a purity cult of you're not part of the woke unless you frame everything around this I- political ideology or this uh, policy, like purity, mm. pol- uh, count, uh, like a like the Bernie bros did with Medicare for all. If you don't support Medicare for all, you're not part of you're not in the in group type of thing. And there's a faction of the extreme left where you have the the Antifa, quote unquote, the the big boogeyman of the right uh, is there and it's vice versa. The the big bad boogeyman on the to the left is the right is the alt right, you know, mm-hmm. um, and we will f- if if there's something worth fighting over, we'll find a way to fight over it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just who we are. Like, I used to fight in a cage for pleasure, which is weird to look back at now. Like, why the hell? You you fought? Why would I? Yeah. Oh, that's like awesome. in tournaments and stuff. That's awesome. Not, I think that's great. But it's silly. Like, why did I want to hurt someone? I think I think controlled. So I I draw a pretty bright line between sportsmen sports fighting for sports and fighting mm-hmm. for survival. Because <laughs> when yeah, you're, when yeah, you're absolutely. fighting for sports, the agreement the agreement up front is that neither one of us are going to harm either one of us' ability to reproduce with this fight. We agree to that. And then we're going to fight, you know, get a little bruised, get a little bloody, but I'm not going to aim for your nuts and you're not going to aim for mine. But when you're fighting <laughs> for survival, nuts are on the table. Yeah. I'm going to end I'm going to end your ability to reproduce and that is a a beast of a that's a beast that I oppose. Yeah, I I, I just had that competitive thing in me um where I was a you know, top-level contender or uh, athlete in high school and then I I've always been cert- looking for that high that that i'm a thrill seeker you know Mm. like i'm always looking for the next big rush and like i've done skydiving and belunking and ripcord and bungee cord and it's so cool diving and all that kind of stuff i did fighting i did stand-up comedy and that's the most scared i've ever been really doing stand-up yes because the anticipation of possible impending doom and rejection yeah yeah that's that's willful that's that's willful Portrait. risk of of public humiliation, which is a yes. deep fear for human. That's right. <laughs> and even I, who have not scared to be embarrassed, like, um, but in that moment, you can't ignore your chemical biology mm-hmm. is like there's a rush of endorphins that makes your stomach turn and your palms sweaty and you're sweaty and you're jittery. And you got like. Uh, I ca- I consider it like a twinkles on the edges of your vision, like mm. there's vasoconstriction, you know, like <laughs> it's stuff you can't control. The uh, sympathetic reflex system mm. says, "Fear, get the hell out of here. Mm. This is scary. Mm. Run!" And you just grab the mic and you walk out there. And you say, "Screw all that. I'm gonna challenge myself today." And I how did you it, do? You know, like, I think good. It's fun. Nice. Um, I did it for like a year, like an amateur workshop thing, and. We'd get up there for like five, ten minutes a piece and kind of critique each other and make sure there's no plagiarism or rep- like I've heard that joke before type of thing. Mm-hmm. Then I actually got to get into like a contest like back then. Now, this is 15 years ago um, where no 18. My daughter was born where you had this thing called Last Comic Standing on TV. Yeah, Last Comic Standing. 
So at that time, there's a thing called Last Comic Standing South Bend Edition, just for South Bend. And okay. Is at the Funny Bone in South South Bend, Indiana, which I'm about 45 minutes from. So I'd go down there, and there's a tournament, like a competition. So uh, I showed up and you know threw my hat in the ring and got up there and did it. You know, I took second place, which was pretty cool. Nice. Um, but I got laughs, man. That's all that matters. I got laughs. I got to entertain people. How's um, what's that like getting laughs from stage? Man, it's it's kind of like getting a one punch knockout. Knockout. It's only like I describe <laughs> it. Just you clip someone perfect and they just go down. It's over. You're like it's climactic. You know where mm. when you start to really kill. So I had a really killer punchline. I was like, man, I really ended on a high note. And I'm like, damn, there we go. Mm. Laughs per minute. You know that's the, that's that's the Chris Rock version of it. Laughs per minute. Just get it out. Last per second for him. Shit. And Dave Chappelle and everybody else. But um, but yeah, I was I just I loved it. It was fun. And then you get divorced and things aren't so funny anymore. Mm. I'm sorry so then I was that. like, I'm writing some dark humor here. This mm. is not funny. This mm. is just dark. Mm. I should write a book, not do stand up. So I stopped <laughs> I stopped doing stand up. Um but I, I really did enjoy it. I still enjoy the idea. I love making people laugh. If you if you see a live stream, I'm gonna make you laugh. I just I have to find my moments. I'm always looking for that moment, that that observation humor or George Carlin moment where you're just like <laughs> just this little rib. You just stick it in there going, Yeah. Well they say laughs, laughter is you know? the best medicine. Man, you got that right. It really is. I, I actually apply that with my job as a healthcare worker. I try to make my patients laugh if I can. Hmm. You know, even if it's at me, that's fine. Like one time I was outside of a patient's house and they had not put salt down because they don't leave their home. They were homebound. It was the middle of the winter, icy as hell. And I didn't wear my snow boots that day because it wasn't a lot of snow. It was warm. It was like 40 degrees the day before, but it all melted. Hmm. And there's a sheet of ice on their on their uh, porch. And I busted my ass. Oh, and no. ep- My feet above your head. Oh, wow. Coming down. Here comes the earth. Here comes my rib cage and my back and my Ooh. butt. Just wham. And I busted my ass. And it was just kind of funny. And I laid there for a second. I was like, I hope someone saw this at least, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I sat up and no one's looking anywhere. It's like an apartment complex. Uh, they had like these little little patios in the back side of it. They didn't answer their front door because they couldn't get up, so they always left their back slider open. So I went on a little patio porch thingy and I jumped up there and just wham oh man, busted my ass. But I came inside and most people want to protect their their image, if you will, or their mm, perception of mm. them. I'm a medical professional. I'm mm. stiffy, you know. Not me. I come in and I said, man, do you guys see that? And they're like, what? I was like, man, I just busted my butt on your deck. They're like, oh, my God, we're so sorry. I said, no, it's no big deal. But look at my back. And I'm just covered. Jeez. In, like, soot. <laughs> so I couldn't even sit down in their house. I got to my car. I had to get the coat out of my trunk I keep to sit on that because it got my my uh, interior disgusting and filthy. But, like, I came in and just laughed about it. You know, just made a couple jokes about it throughout the treatment. And they kind of just laughed and... And I remember this patient specifically had a lot of pain. And it's funny when you look back at your notes and you go, okay, the last three times I saw him, he said his pain was an 8 out of 10. His back was killing him. Hmm. That day, his pain was a 4. Oh, nice. It's it's subjective. Hmm. You know, so I feel like a little humor makes the pain less intense. You know, like I, I hope. At least you tried. You know, it might not work, but at least you tried. I think, you succeeded. You, got, you, know. I think you succeeded. I think you succeeded. 
I think so. And we laughed about it every single time I came. And he never said eight out of ten again. You know what I mean? Like it's perception. Oh, here comes boys. Boy, that was funny. And you kind of get that <laughs> laughter, a little endorphin rush. And you and you release some pain uh chemicals that decreases perception of pain. You know, like it's it's physiologically true. Mm-hmm. Laughter does release endorphins that, that blocks pain signals. So I don't know, man. If you can laugh at me, that's fine. You know, do you that's still like entertain it as a thing to go back to comedy, or or is it um, in your past in your rear view? No, it's never going to be in my past. Nope. I will always think about writing more stuff again. Um, because I observe crazy stuff doing my job, my kids. The world we live in is funny mm. and tragic. Um, and I, I even find humor in tragedy. You know. Especially if it's my own. Like, I have to make fun of it. Like, either you cry or you laugh. And I just choose to laugh. Sometimes I cry, but I try to laugh. You know? <laughs> I try really hard to laugh, you know? But, um, yeah, comedy is one of those things where it's willful. Um, oh, man, what do you call it? Like, risk-taking. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge risk. Because I think, oh, I think we have biological systems that say, uh, do not put your reputation at risk they we, i think we have systems that say put your physical safety at risk before you put your reputation at risk as long as you think you're going to survive right so if if you think that you can stick your arm somewhere that might pinch your arm a little bit but it's going to save you from being embarrassed later you'll take the pinch <laughs> right you'll pinch yeah. you'll, you'll bruise mm-hmm. your arm in order to yeah. prevent your ego being bruised in a couple right. hours uh well and i think there's a biological or i'm not a a, a, a social sociological evolutionary reasoning for it mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. body reduce uh, producing a fear mechanism to being embarrassed in front of your peer group if you will yeah. because we come from bands of 100 people roughly yeah. is you know sociologically speaking so way back when, when we're starting to form groups of people to survive, tribes, if you will, if you were embarrassed, you were cast out, mm. not considered someone to reproduce with, not considered someone to share in resources. And sometimes, like, that's why he's like, well, if you don't believe in God and what keeps you from murdering and raping people, I'm like, nothing. I rape as many people as I want. I murder as many people as I want, which is zero. That's an interesting. <laughs> I never heard you know? it put that way. I, you know what? I rape yeah. as many people as I want and murder as many yep. people as I want, which thus far yep. has been zero. That's right. Yeah. I don't need a Bible to tell me that. Like, it's a social contract we all have. Mm. If you're of sound mind, you know, there's some that aren't. But the premise is that we can evolve morally without a religious upbringing. Mm. Tribes did it for eons to mm. keep the tribe together. So if you steal, rape, murder, you're out of the group, and now your numbers are not in your favor. You're most likely to get picked off by predators. Mm. You know, so I always talk about these things. Like it's it's an and evolutionary. Here's an interesting system. thing. So I, I agree with you. I think that I think that our moral compass actually more comes from our genetic code than it comes from outside of the transcendent universe uh so it's an interesting thing so if you're this is just a thought experiment if you're in a group of let's say a hundred and you guys are totally just living with each other in the wild and you do Mm -hmm. something that gets you embarrassed humiliated and then you get outcasted let's say you're a 
30 year old man which is you're still viable but your your clock is ticking if right. you can go out right you get cast out if you can find one female uh, that's from out of your group right because you aren't allowed to your group mate with mm-hmm. her have some kids right maybe find two females have those kids i, I don't want to get into to the math too close of how you can build a tribe but you can yeah build another tribe and then the descendants in your original tribe you'll be the person of legend <laughs> you'll, you'll right. be an absolute legend you got yeah. cast out and still you were able to thrive after yep. being cast out i think that's an amazing story yep. just just thinking out loud but there would have to be some other evolutionary advantages to survive because your your main survival was numbers because mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. a human we're not good we're not fast we don't have the best vision. We don't have the best smell. We don't That's have the true. best sight, ears. We don't. We have the best brain to make, uh, we to manipulate our environment to protect us, not use our physical attributes to protect That's us. True. Um, we're tool makers. So you um, would have so, to have built. You'd you'd have to found some tree. Yep. You had built some awesome builder. spear and built some uh, awesome roost up in a tree. Uh, and also had your eye out for snakes because snakes can get you in a tree and so yeah. can spiders. Uh, but but the big cats can't. Mm-hmm. Or well, maybe they can. about vegetation, Jeez, like oh yeah, cats can oh, get up a tree. That's true. that's true. Yeah, they they'll kill you and take you up in the Jeez tree to hide Louise. you from everybody else. You're not safe, man. Anywhere, like you got to build a legit shelter, mm. um, or like a hole. Like most humans were cave dwellers because they didn't know right. how to build a structure that was impervious to lions and to like elephants, um, or to, to poisonous spiders and snakes and you know, golly, there's so many things that can kill you. So but, many. To survive that extradition, this this your excise from your group, hmm. you would have to be an expert at many many things, which hmm. is not likely, because hmm. that's not what your do- job is in a group. Your job is to be good at something, not everything. Hmm. So you're so dependent on your group to survive evolutionarily wise hmm. that you're probably good at one thing. Like you know what berries are going to poison you, but you don't know how to kill a, a, an animal, a large enough game to keep you sustained, or where the hell's the water come from? Or you know, these all these different survival things that we do as humans in a, in a you know evolutionary wise in the past that we all codependent on each other. That's why it's so important to be a part of a group. That's why I think it's such a powerful chemical to not risk your yeah. public persona, your perception, your name, if you will. And I love that feeling of of pushing on that. Like when I went skydiving, god damn, that was so good. That was the best feeling I've had in a long time. Just being up in the plane, opening the door. They let me open the door too. So I open the door and I look down. I'm like, we're going 120 mile an hour. We're 10,000 feet. That's six kilometers. Jeez. Or six, uh, it's 10,000 meters, 6.2 miles up in the air. You know, 10K is 6.2 miles. So we're up six miles up. I'm looking down and the trees are tiny, you know? <laughs> um, you know, and. It's just such a weird feeling to be that high and know I'm going to jump. I'm jumping. I'm going to risk my life today and I'm going to trust this parachute to do its job. Other than that, I have no control, but I'm still going to make this leap with a smile. Like the jump instructor says, okay, uh, who wants to go first? And I raise my hand and the you other people are like, do oh, it. thank goodness. You didn't do a non-tandem. You did a tandem, right? Yeah, you can't do a non-tandem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not at first. He's like, who wants to go first? Like right here. He goes, okay, you sit by the door. He goes, you're going with me. He goes, you like doing backflips? I'm like, hell yeah. 
Nice. He goes, how many backflips you want to do? I was like, how many can we do? He goes, we can do like five or six in a row and we'll lose about, we'll go about 2,000 of the 10,000 feet in about 10 seconds. I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. He's like, yes. He goes, he's going with me. So we, he hooked up to my pack and we jumped on that thing and, you know, I got to open the door and step out there and you're standing on this little platform about the size of your, about the size of a laptop mm. with your feet. And then your instructor climbs out there and hooks up to you. And he says on three, one, two, three, and you jump and you pull your knees to your chest and you start flipping. Jeez. And it is, I'm smiling, man, right now thinking about smiling. Oh, it's just, I love that feeling, man. I don't know why. I feel like I'm most alive when I'm cheating death. <laughs> Which is a weird thing to admit, but it is true. I don't think that's weird. I don't think fighting. Uh, 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 I bought my motorcycle. I took it out on the highway, went 120, just to see what it could do. It one time, and I was like, "God damn, that was scary. I could have died." Then I never I tell did you, it again. I've had the I've had the opposite reaction. I've brushed death uh, a couple times, but the thing is, they weren't of my own will <laughs> so you didn't create the scenario no 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 yeah no i didn't i didn't not not by a long shot uh i'm i'm thinking now if i want to make this story on record uh yeah yeah why not why not so i used to run with a bunch of druggies uh in my early 20s it's deeply mm -hmm. regrettable but it's true about my history yeah uh and one day i woke up from a nap and i was looking for my dope and i couldn't find it and so I asked the guy, I said, hey, where's my dope? And him and his girlfriend were asleep. said, I don't know. I said, whatever. About nine months later, that guy told me, hey, man, you remember that day you fell asleep and couldn't find your dope? I said, yeah. He said, yeah, my girlfriend took it, and I had a loaded shotgun pointed at your head while you were asleep. Uh, oh. And I was thinking about, you know, blowing your head off so you wouldn't get mad at my girlfriend. He says, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> he, he admitted this to me wow. to apologize. Uh, and I said, well, thanks uh, for not doing that. And thanks for telling me, I guess. Uh, and since then, I've had zero, zero desire to risk my life. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I think it nullified it for me. Man. Well, I've had a lot of near – okay, let's put – let's think evolutionary-wise. I have had to have CPR three times before I was eight years old. What? So I drowned once, and I, and I have no fear of the water. I love the water. But I drowned when I was very young, like four. And I remember it. Like, I remember falling in water, looking up and seeing the sunlight coming through the water and it getting darker. And then all of a sudden I'm out and I my dad's pumping my chest and hurting my ribs, giving me CPR and I threw up water. Like, mm. I remember that. Then I hung myself on accident. No way. With a rope. Yeah, with, a, with a, like a, a noose rope, if you will, is a slip knot tied around a, a tree. It was a, uh, it's considered a tire swing, like a big old truck yeah, tire. Yeah, a tire swing. And Yes, yeah, so we get in the tire swing. Well, my uh, cousins, we're a bunch of hillbillies over here. Um, so we're all like at my one of my family members, I'm not sure, like a, a great aunt or something or a grandparent, um, at their yard, in their house, in their yard. And there's this huge crabapple tree that the, the swing was in, the tire swing. Hmm. So the older cousins would get in the tire swing. They climb up on the windowsill to get really high and they jump and swing across as fast as they could. Then all of us was up in the tree. We'd grab some crab apples and try and hit them off of it. Okay. This tough guy bullshit, you know? Oh, you can't hurt me. Take a beating, you know? So we're all getting lumped up. We're hitting all the older kids. Well, then they got in trouble because somebody got bopped pretty good, you know? Mm. Like, hey, you kids beat it. And they took a sawzall and they cut the tire swing, the tire off the rope, but they left the slip knot there. 
And I was the oldest of the younger kids. This is like seven. And then all the older kids had to leave and they got in trouble. But they let the younger kids to keep playing in the tree or whatever. I took that swing, the uh, the rope, and I went up to the windowsill. And I was holding on to the to the window lip. And I put my foot in that rope. I was like, you guys ready? They said, yeah. I jumped. My foot popped out and that rope came up and caught me right on the throat. And I was about a foot too short to even touch the ground. And I'm swinging by my neck. And they said they screamed. They went and got my mom, which they were all playing cards outside on a table, apparently across the yard. So they ran to her and they finally got her to figure out what the hell is wrong. Whereas boys, oh yeah, he's over there hanging. And so she had to run up a hill and come get me. And she said, I was blue tongue sticking out. And I remember like the back of my ears and my, my neck and throat were all swelled up, but my ears and my neck had scabs on them from the rope. And I couldn't like talk for like oh two weeks. Oh my gosh. I couldn't go to school for a week. I couldn't talk. And I had like rug burns or uh, tie, uh, rope burns and bruises on my throat. And neck. I'm, I'm imagining your mom. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, my uh, gosh. I know what I would do. I would probably throw up and be like, what the hell? My kid's dying. But yeah, so they gave me CPR and brought me back because I wasn't breathing. No heartbeat. I was done. Um, and then the third one is I drank gasoline on accident. <laughs> um, my dad, before he left, one of his final acts was to siphon gas out of an old broke down truck or a van. Mm. He's sucking it out, you know, a garden hose or the hose. They, they suck it and they... They get a positive force, and it, it it siphons the gas out of the gas tank. Is this all in Coloma? No, no, no. This was in Georgia and Benton Harbor, okay. Michigan, here where I'm from. Uh, but we're in Benton Harbor here, and he was siphoning gas, but he didn't have any containers. We had an eight-pack of Mountain Dew bottles back then, hmm. but we weren't allowed to have pop of any sort. So my dad filled up the bottles with the gas and put them up on the windowsill in the kitchen. Well, I was in the kitchen... And I could see the pop sitting there with no tops on. I'm like, oh, man, there's Mountain Dew. Oh, All the wow. lids are off. What the heck? Oh, my gosh. So I, I opened the drawers, and I started climbing up to the windowsill from the drawers to get on the counter. And I grabbed one, and I started chugging it, and then I woke up in the hospital. No. But, yeah, I woke up, and there's like a tube down my throat, and they're pouring charcoal. And sucking out, I saw black fluid coming out of my stomach, and I started screaming. But I couldn't scream because there's a tube down my throat. Yeah. And like my my mom is literally laying across my chest and my arms and holding me down. Jeez Louise! And I'm just freaked out. Like, what the hell's going on? Am I dead? Like all that. How old were before, you? Like eight. Eight. Yep. So I remember I was nine. My dad left. And it was, my dad was still around. So it's like my my time markers. When he left, I was nine. Mm, mm. So I had to be eight. You know, like <laughs> all that. Well, you have brushed. Still <laughs> you no have fear, brushed the like, old Grim Reaper. Yeah, man, and like it. I don't know why it didn't. It didn't. Um, I'm not scared of heights. I'm not scared of water. I'm not gonna drink gasoline. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> does the smell like, trigger you to the day, or do you? Does it not? Not really. No. I was so young. And I plus, just, I guess you have to get gas so much in your life where if it triggered mm-hmm. you, you'd kind of be debilitating. Oh, yeah, I'd be a, a agoraphobe. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of weird, you know, things happen. And then, of course, my family, well, God was protecting you. I was like, again, he keeps putting these bad situations. Why does he just not put me in them? You know, why didn't this, why didn't that rope not hang me? You know, oh, there's he's an, good to you now. There's like, an interesting on, thing that this God memory can do. 
And I think it's memory bending, and I don't think it's memory bending in a helpful way. So there was a time <laughs> where my aunt was driving. Uh, it must have been me. I don't know if it was any of her kids, but uh, but there were a couple other people in the car for sure. But my aunt was driving. And the car stalled. Now, this is my memory of the event. My memory of the event is that the car stalled on the tracks uh, in the, right there on Willowbrook, on uh, Compton Boulevard. And so the, the car stalled and we're on the tracks and a train starts coming. And this is a freight train. Okay. Uh, this is not a, not a blue rail. And so we're, we're there, the car stalls. She's trying to start. She's trying to start. We're trying to panic. And there are people at the intersection on the other side of the, uh, cross, the cross arms are down now. And, you know, they come down, they come down on the side where the traffic shouldn't go. Right. So we've got a cross arm behind us, but we don't have one in front of us. Uh, and yeah, they're, they're honking, you know, and it's kind of a commotion. And then see, this is the thing about the memory. My memory now is that none of us got out of the car. The car was on the tracks, middle of the tracks when it stalled, and then the car moves, kind of like somebody's pushing it. The tires don't even turn. It just slides, it slides about six feet until it's off the tracks and the train passes behind us, but the car never started. But I don't think that's my actual memory. I think that's because my, my aunt, you know, is very religious, and the story, having been told over the years, is that the car moved without the tires turning and that's the story that i heard over and over and over till such that now that's what i quote unquote remember happening right uh, well, memory is very tricky yeah yeah i don't think of course i don't think that's what I, I think what actually happened is where the car stopped uh wasn't you know this is just me reconstructing it as someone who's skeptical uh, i think the car actually stopped probably where only the back of it was actually in harm's way uh, and then putting it in neutral or something allowed it to roll down the hill because there was a little bit right. of gravity on our side and it rolled for, for far enough on it without now the engine never started i'm pretty sure of that but it but my aunt was able to put it in neutral and let it roll far enough and maybe she even stuck her foot out the door and helped it nobody got out the car as far as i know uh you know for that matter a guy could have come and hit us and I, I come and push this, but I don't, I don't remember that happening. But I think yeah. it's more likely the car rolled naturally with the force of gravity out of the way of the train, and it was never fully in the middle of the tracks, uh, like the story has been told. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the tricky part of memory, man. Like I could have swore on a stack of Bibles, whatever you want to call it, that this memory was true. That I was driving, yada yada yada. It turned out no, my ex-wife was driving. Mm. You know what I mean? Like mm. that's a serious detail. I was driving. Yes, I was. She goes, no, you were not. I was like, yes, I was. Because so-and-so and so-and-so was in the backseat and this happened. She goes, no. And she goes, okay, fine. Let's call them. We put them on a conference call and they confirmed that I was wrong. Mm. I was like, wait, no, I'm sitting in the driver's seat. She goes, no, I was driving. You were in the passenger seat. I'm like, no way. And our, our memory is flawed yeah. significantly. Yeah, and in my, in my case... I have this, uh, and I think that's probably why I, I'm careful now not to attach that to my uh, near-death experiences, even though just thinking, talking about near-death experiences brings that memory to mind. Because uh, I don't right. think it was, it was, because it was scary. It was scary, you know, so it, it's, it wants to be in that group. Uh, and then, yeah. but then the way we got out doesn't seem to be the way that the story was told about how we got yeah. out. Um and that's just one of the things that we probably agree on, that religion religion is mind-bending. Uh, and I tell you what, the mind, uh, I've got a, 
I've, I studied the brain more than most. And I tell you that the mind doesn't need any additional bending. <laughs> it's bent. It's bent enough. Yeah. It's very, very bent. Uh, it's got, yeah, like it has to chemical, forget things. Yeah. Yeah. The chemistry of the mind is powerful because it does give you physiological effects. Like meditation. Hmm. You can you can scientifically study a monk in a cold environment, a controlled cold environment, and do a, a surface temperature, and they start doing their mantras, they're, they're chanting, and they can manipulate their blood flow. Hmm. You know, like, that is amazing. But that tells you the power of the mind. Hmm. Like, I was actually on a Humanity Forward hang, and after we stopped recording, we had a discussion... And uh, one of the guys talked about autism and stuff. And I said, and he said, I think autism uh, can be treated, this and that. And I said, well, what if, I said, I have a different perspective. What if autism is an evolutionary step that we we see as a problematic, but evolutionary wise, it's evolution trying to make a better version of us. Yeah. And they're like, what? I was like, think of savants. Perfect pitch, perfect memory. They can draw something from memory. They can smell a color. They can taste light. Yeah. Like their sensory is off. It's, sta- it's a standard deviation from typical sensory uh, processing. So it's atypical sensory. I was like, so they're showing us what our brain is potentially capable of. Mm. Mm. So every savant has a different skill set, but it also, the brain hasn't figured out how to chemically keep that balance so they can still be functional in social settings or. Uh, different types of the stimuli, you know, that they and can't even process that, that isn't true for all of the savants. There are a no. lot of people mm-hmm. who are uh, considered neuroatypical autistic savants, but they operate socially pretty much like everyone else, uh, well, yeah, or exactly of, like uh, everyone. Richard else. Dawkins is he on? Is he, does I, he have claim to be on the spectrum? Nope, but I think he is a savant. Mm. He's able. He's capable of doing things that no other human could. The most complex mathematical formulas in his head. Mm. That is a superpower. Mm. Uh, Bach, I think it was, wrote symphonies when he was deaf. He lost his hearing, but he could feel it. Like mm. to me, that is a that is a atypical sensory process, and he was functional. Otherwise, you know. Mm. Um, so I, I look back at history. Some of these people that were extraordinary. That. Like there's some humans that are born with way more muscle at, at birth, like just seriously not normal. Arnold Schwarzenegger took steroids, but he was still genetically gifted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's other people like uh, Bo Jackson is the best example. He never lifted weights, but no. he ran the fastest. Four- he had to lift he, weights. He, he, no, he did not. But you, nope. Don't you have to as a professional athlete? Nope. He he said he bought. He bought the gym and put it in his house to make people stop asking. What? He never ran a 40-yard dash in his life, and he ran the 40 at the combine. They said, what's your 40, Bo? He's like, what? What's a 40? They said, your 40-yard dash time. He goes, I don't know. They said, run it. He broke the record. Jeez. Six foot two, 230, running back. Ran a 4-1. That's crazy. Bo Jackson is a freak of nature. Now, there's also people that are freak of nature's cerebrally, you know, with with music, mm. with with um, memory, with math, with all with language. Some people know ten languages, man. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But it shows you what our brain is capable of. 
there's a uh there's a language pathologist. I can't remember this entire story, but I know this. I learned this in college and in, in child development. They took a bait. These these two parents were both in the sciences about language and sociology, and they decided to create an experiment with their own child, which was weird and um, risky. Yeah. So it wasn't a, a dangerous. It's more about language. Mm. So they taught their child seven languages, and they learned them all fluently. And without even the baby knowing, they recognized the environment and the language was what was worked in this environment. So seven days a week, they lived in a different house and they had different daycare or, or like people spoke different languages like their caregivers. Mm. So when that caregiver came here, they, they spoke German. They only spoke German the entire day. When they came home, they spoke English. Mm. The next day, Spanish. The next day, French. The next day is Swahili or whatever, Mandarin. Like their baby learned seven languages coming up because the environment, uh, e e it, environmental stress says, oh, that doesn't work here. It only works here without the baby even being conscious of it. That's pretty cool. You know, so all these weird things that shows, I believe that autism is the only way that we can evolve because we are the first animal to control our environment. Because usually you have to adapt to your environment. That's like external stresses, which causes you to mutate and evolve advantages, right? So we control our environment. We should be, if you live in a very bright place, you should have darker skin mm. and carry less body fat. If you live in a cold, dark environment like up north with the Inuits, you have more fat cells and you carry more fat naturally and you have a lighter complexion. So there's less mm. sun you need to absorb more melanin. You need less melanin to absorb more light, you know, um, to produce vitamin D. Like that's how we evolve to have different skin tones, for instance. And I think yet, you're hitting the nail on the head. Uh, I agree with you that, uh, mm -hmm. autism and what we're, what we're calling autism today is very likely, uh, some of the early perceptible changes in human biology that uh, make up the natural changes that make up natural selection and evolution uh, because yeah. in today's and yesterday yesterday's environment for our species was all about uh, climbing a hill quickly swimming across a river quickly throwing a spear accurately these types of things this is yeah. how we evolved and so that's what our bodies do right surviving surviving the winter intelligently right fashioning tools and whatnot today's environment is all about screens and internal mm -hmm. computations right and yeah. what what can you do digitally so everyone that can do digitally better than anyone else has an evolutionary advantage, especially, well, actually, let me say it differently. What, what's our environment today? Acquiring money. <laughs> that's that's your real gift, right? If you have a gift of acquiring money, then you're, you're out surviving all your neighbors. Uh, so if you can do digitally on a screen and that translate that into money, I mean, I think Elon Musk is the one sane per person on a planet full of crazy people. Uh, yeah, well, and I, I, think I think Elon Musk is a great example of that, though. In, in a pre-technological America, Elon Musk is not even, like, going to get laid. Yeah, and people want to put him on the spectrum. I resist it. I resist people putting him on the spectrum. Uh, I don't think he's on the spectrum. I, I, think, I think we should – if Elon Musk is on the autistic spectrum, then our descriptions are wrong. 
right? We need to change our descriptions so that he is the very center of what we call excellent entrepreneurial first principle thinking, right? Whatever, whatever description we have of ourselves that says that I cannot be like Elon Musk, your description is broken. You need to be admiring towards and emulating and imitating Elon Musk. That's for me, and I think that's for everyone. Well, and that just shows you that we as society decides what's uh, atyp- uh, typical neurologically. So he has difficulty in social settings in the past. But he's also got, what, four kids? Uh, he's mated yes. He's mated or five now with with Ash, with uh, however you say that kid's name. I, I call the kid Ash. Uh, I think he does too. Yeah. And so five now with Ash. I mean, he's, he's successfully mated. He's moved into mm-hmm. the next generation. And he's moved the species along. And he's a multi-billionaire. I call that the center of success. And he's probably, and he's a nice guy from what I tell. <laughs> you can well, sit down and, and talk with him. Think about it. He has the capability of thinking in a way that none of us have ever mm. outside of maybe like Gerald Ford when it comes to inventing a car, mm. you know, um, create uh, learning how to make a fire. Like those are revolutionary. That's true. He's kind of he's kind of like that guy that made fire when nobody had fire and go, what are you doing yep. with the fire? He's got fire. You rub sticks. Holy shit. Yeah. That's amazing. You know, I had to wait for thunder and lightning and I'd, I'd go chase a down tree and grab, grab an ember, you know, in your life, depending on keeping that thing lit. Now it doesn't matter. You can just light one anywhere. Oh shit. Now we're mobile. Oh yep. shit. Yep. Oh, now we're mobile. Now we're talking, you know, now we're going to chase this animal as they migrate, you know, like all these things. And Elon is, I think is, like I said, he's perceived to be a atyp- uh, not atypical, but yet, <laughs> extraordinary thing. So I yeah. think people, like you said, I don't know enough about diagnosing. First and foremost, I'm a I do physical therapy. You know, I don't know shit about diagnosing. Um, but I think people are just uncomfortable with him being comfortable mm. Mm. with who he is mm. and how I, he's, I think he that's true. A, a I fucking that's letter, true. like he named his kid a letter and a number after some of his favorite plane or some shit. Yep. Yep. Like. The A, the E twelve or A E twelve Alpha A E twelve. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And I said, think what people do. I think what people do with Elon. Uh, I think they look at what he's done, and then they quickly devise a way to say to themselves, "I can't be like that." Right? They quickly devise a way to make sure that they don't have to compare their behavior to his. Stop that. I had that reaction a little bit. Uh, and I stopped it. And I say, I say we all stop it. Whatever, whatever each one of us is doing to prevent us from comparing our behavior to his, yep. stop it. Compare your behavior to his. Do it. We should all, we need so many more Elon Musk and we need them right now. And so if we allow our culture to continue to propagate this idea that, oh, you can't be like Elon, that's just like telling little kids they can't be president. Why would you do that? Why yeah. would you do that? <laughs> That's defeatist. It's defeat, it defeats the purpose. It's defeatist, mm-hmm. right? So what you need mm-hmm. to do is say, this is how Elon time manages. This is how he thinks. This is how he got to where he is. This is how he did what he did. Study it. Now, we're not all going to reach <laughs> that level, right? It, it's the uh-huh. same as something like a Dwayne The Rock Johnson. So I think Dwayne The Rock Johnson is a popularly acceptable model where people go okay compare your behavior to Dwayne's see how well you can do compared to this of course you're not Dwayne right I'm not saying that we're Elon or you don't compare your 
You don't compare your personhood to someone else's personhood. You don't compare your human value to their human value. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is compare your behavior to their behavior. That's what we're all on. We're all on the quest for the best behaviors. Uh, And so Dwayne The Rock Johnson is a good example. They say, look how hard he works. Will Smith is a good example. Look how hard he works. Look how he interacts with people. Look how nice he is. Uh, Go look how honest he is to, you know, to the extent that they're honest. I don't know these men personally, but to the extent that they're honest, Mm -hmm. be like them to this extent. Uh, And a lot of us imitate our same sex parent to a large extent. Um, Yeah. And so I think we should all be imitating. Go ahead. Well, there's, I, I, this is something I learned. I went to three years of therapy, right? Mm. So there's two ways of identifying. You either identify with your parents or you counter-identify. Mm. Mm. So I counter-identified. My dad was a racist. My mom was a evangelical fundamentalist. I'm an atheist with a girlfriend from uh, that her parents are first immigrant, first-generation immigrants from Uganda. <laughs> you know, so... Hmm. Talk about counter-identifying. Um, if you don't like your parents, you counter-identify with them. That's just what it comes mm-hmm. down to. Mm-hmm. Legit racist. Oh yeah, yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. From we're from Georgia. What was what was that <laughs> like? I can't say I've ever interacted with a legit conscious racist. To be mm-hmm. absolutely honest. Like we moved from Georgia to Michigan um, when I was five uh, because my mom got into some drug problems. And so he says, I'm going to take her out of this environment. Maybe she'll be a better person. Um, he was kind of right, kind of wrong. Just mm. a different version of not great mm. as far as I was concerned. Mm. But um, so he put me in a school that's predominantly low income black neighborhood. I was the only white kid at school one year and he expected me to hate everybody. And at the same time, Michael Jackson's Thriller album came out. <laughs> It's a good album. And that def- that defied all logic of racist mm. uh, ideology. Because mm. my dad's like, so how do I put this? We went to church where it's predominantly black people in the church, too. So I made friends at church before I made friends at school because the kids at school had no incentive to be nice to me. Mm. At church, you got to be nice. Or you get whooped by your grandma. Um, So I got friends at church and I got some friends at school. Then my dad's like, where's your white friends? Don't you got any white friends? I'm mm. like, no, I am the white friend. Like, there is no other kids look like me, you know? Um, and then, then I realized that poor is poor. Mm. It, it doesn't matter skin color. It's it's poor. And like, I was, like when I was a kid, they say, we is po. Mm. <laughs> and we were very, very poor. Um but then he we, we, we had to leave that neighborhood. By the time I was nine, he left. We moved to a small town in Hartford I was telling you about. It's mostly migrant workers and poor white people. And it's a big old trailer park. I mean, one small town has three huge trailer parks. That's how poor it is. Um, but so my I, I grew up in a black neighborhood and then a Hispanic trailer park. It's half Hispanic, half white. Uh I call it poor white trash. You know, what state was that? Hartford, Michigan. Hartford, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look up Hartford, Michigan. Very small. Hmm. Um, and I think there might be twelve hundred people in in Hartford total. Looks like the ninety four runs oh. right across it. Yep. 
Yep, and Coloma is like seven miles to the west of that off the exit. Okay. Off 94. Um, so I was in high school. I had friends that were uh, native, um, Pokagon tribe, and Mexicans, and white people. Um, and at that school, there's only two black kids in the whole school system. Mm. Um, Richard Johnson and Demetrius Orr, never forget them. You know, I come from Benton Harbor to Hartford as the white kid from the black school, and here they are the black kids at the white school kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And they're like, man, how, how'd you, how'd you wind up there? And I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing here? You know, like <laughs> when you're a kid, you don't really understand. Like we, we were both in weird places, but here we are. But like, so I grew up like not hating people for how they looked. Like I hated people for being mean to me, <laughs> you know, as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I went in the military and, uh, you know, all my friends were diverse my um but my dad hated people man he hated everybody he's a hateful person mm-hmm. um but here's the thing i've dated multi labeled uh, quote unquote races which isn't real uh but then my sister's husband's half black half white mm-hmm. so she goes to get married and he she calls me crying one day and says dad said he's not going to walk me down the aisle cuz he's black wow i was like give me his number so I didn't talk to him. I didn't like him. Um, and so my sister gave me his number. I called him. I was like, hey, if you don't walk uh, my sister down the aisle, you're dead to me. You don't exist. You literally are dead. Like, someone asked me, where's your dad? He's dead. And he's like, what? Well, you know, I don't agree with that stuff. Like, nobody asked you. You left. You didn't pay nothing. You didn't do nothing. We didn't ask anything of you. This is the one thing. You have one daughter. There's only one kid you got to walk down the aisle. That's her. Mm. If you don't show up. For this one thing, you're dead to me. You don't exist. And he wind up, I was like, you need to come up here. You need to go meet her husband. He owns his own house. He owns his own car. He's starting his own business. He's good to his mom. And just so happened, his dad was black. How? What? This guy is nicer than me. He's better than me. He's a nicer person. Like, he's a good person. And he ha- he loves your daughter. What more can a guy do? You know? And he's like, well, you know, I just don't agree with that. I said, you need to come here and meet him, first of all. Meet him. And then he met him, and we was up here, went bowling and stuff. And after the end of it, he's like, well, you're all right. Have you seen that Joe Rogan where he talks to the black guy, Daryl, something or another, that goes talks to the KKK members? Yeah, Yeah. the clan hoods? Hell yeah, man. I mean, isn't that... It seems like that's such a common story across uh, the racially divided parts of our country where it's yep. really a matter of ignorance in that. And I'm, ta- I'm not talking about ignorance with a capital I. I'm just talking about you just don't know any people of that color. Uh, I yeah. can I can say the reverse is also true. There are very ignorant black people that are racist against white people simply because they don't know any white people. They have some caricature of white people right, in their head right, that right. they're ra- that they're uh, decrying and that they're railing against. Uh, they don't even know yeah, any white that, people. Well, I think exposure leads to understanding, which leads to tolerance. Mm. Well, exposure leads to tolerance, then tolerance leads to understanding. Mm-hmm. The more you, like, like, I didn't know a lot of people that were gay, openly gay, or transgender, or bi, what do you call that? Uh, non-binary? Sure. Like, I didn't understand. I'm like, what the hell you mean, non-binary? What the hell is that? 
that doesn't make any sense. And mm. Like I didn't, I couldn't grasp it. And so I had to go out of my way to meet people that were different in that way that I'd never experienced, you know, um, you know, it's just, it's all about exposure. So my dad, you know, met Andre and, mm-hmm. and, you know, was okay with it. And he's like, well, he's not that bad. Well, then here comes the real change for him was they had kids. And then he That's came true. up for a two week vacation. That's true. And you can see his racist gears getting stuck like mouth. Mal- <laughs> like Mal- <laughs> Cause he's they're your grandkids. This, yeah. He's holding this little girl. He's got little, little black grandkids. Girl. And he's like, E-er, E-er. and he seemed uh, just looking at her wide eyed and getting teary. You know, he's like, I hmm. can't hate her. Why would I hate her? Hmm. She's my grandkid. And it just, right. it, it softened his edges a little bit, you know, but he still thought black people were lesser than, even though he had nothing to show for his entire existence. Like when he died, he had a pickup truck and fishing poles. That's the only thing he owned. He lived in a trailer in the woods. He had a pickup truck and fishing poles to his name and clothes. And he's judging other people from like, you didn't even try to live, man. You just, you just accepted being a poor guy in the woods of Arkansas, you know, like just totally gave up, I guess. Um, I can tell you that I'm very much in the camp of Sam Harris when it comes to race, uh, which is that skin color really should be socioculturally classed in the same way as hair color. You don't ask people on a job application what color their hair is because it doesn't right. matter. It doesn't matter yeah. what color their hair is. And so I'm for the push in our culture that we should remove, seek to remove and remove race from job applications. Just take it well, off. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what color I am. It matters if I can do what you're asking a, a human to do. Um, yeah. Well, and that you know that's that's a tough subject too because of affirmative action laws that allowed opportunities. You know. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know I'm. I'm a, there are a lot of people in my family that are that are for affirmative action for obvious reasons, uh, <laughs> and then I'm actually against it. I just voted against. So California just had a vote about reinstituting affirmative action in our colleges, and I voted against it. Uh, I don't think that. I think we fought to get race off of the admissions criteria in California. Uh, now it was instituted in the I think late '60s. Understandably, socioculturally, that was the time, right? That was the time for race-based and race-considering policy because of the state of the nation at that time. For us in California in the 90s, we said, you know what? We see what's going on in the past 30 years. Uh, We've tried to do some affirmative action. It's had mixed results, some good, some bad. Um, I I understand both arguments of – so there there are two, to me – important arguments about affirmative action not important not not like i know all about the thing but two arguments that resonate with me to the opposite ends one is that by admitting black people to black students to a, a university that they aren't truly qualified to compete in you're condemning them to the bottom half if not the bottom quarter of that class they will go to a university and they will compete with students that are more qualified that are more capable that have better work ethics uh, simply because of the affirmative action and then you're condemning them to fall behind these other students so that's one argument 
against affirmative action uh, that I understand. The other is that if you send a black student to a university that maybe they wouldn't have got in if not for affirmative action, simply being exposed to that university, simply being exposed to that work ethic and that and having them see firsthand exactly how much the people that got into that university without uh, the, the extra assistance, how hard they work, how late they work, how often they sacrifice in order to do well in their academic performance. Simply being exposed to that makes them better. And so there might not be an effect, a tangible effect that we can measure on that student in that four year stint, but chance chances are that that student will then go on to excel more than they would have had they not gone in. And what effect does that have on their next sibling, on their next two siblings? Because they will see, hey, I got in through affirmative action. I wasn't really prepared. Let me tell you guys what it takes to get in. So that might have a downstream effect that's very hard to measure. And I think that's also a powerful argument for it. But like I said, I voted against it uh, in this state because I think it's time that we start to apply um, I think it's time that we start to really treat skin color like hair color. Let's really start making movements in that direction because what we're on uh, is the quest for the be for the best behaviors, and what what matters is civility. Uh, and this also applies to the transgender issue, to the to the to the non-binary, to the to the gender ambiguous issue. It doesn't matter what your genitalia are. It matters are you are you honest. Are you kind? Do you work hard? How do you behave? Do you behave civilly? Are you reasonable? These are the things that matters, and your private parts and your skin color are really irrelevant to those concerns. Well, I would push back on it a little bit because I'd say to to make the assumption that we don't need uh, affirmative action criteria is to say that we have equal opportunities. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But so okay then okay that's this be a good conversation then mm -hmm. so with me I would assume or make the assumption that affirmative action is there because there is a lack of opportunity and equal education across the country so if you go here locally where I live at at Bit Harbor High School where the average income is about twelve thousand dollars a year right at the poverty line like mm -hmm. so twenty five percent of of Berrien County is unemployed. Mm -hmm. That's significantly higher than the rest of the country and the state. Mm. Um, so the property taxes are significantly lower. Mm. Most people don't own a home. I think it's like 10% home ownership. Um, everybody's renting or in public housing um, and on welfare of some sort, you know, just mm. poverty. Mm. Um, so if all your houses are worth less, then your school gets less funding. You have a lesser education. Mm. And so when you look at the measurements, now my daughters go to school called St. Joe, which is a about three miles down the road, they're in the top ten percent of the of the state, and have a top tier college preparatory score. So if you look online at St. Joseph High School, you'll see like a seventy eight out of a hundred college prep mm. score. Mm. Bent Harbor is like twelve. Mm. So to me, affirmative action helps the kids in that environment that don't have the educational opportunities to excel. But if they were in the proper environment, they'd be they'd have an opportunity to to uh, catch up, if you will, or um, to have a better opportunity to a higher level of education or even education at all. Because 
it's 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 tough to go to a, a prestigious college low enough a, a community college if you don't have the basics you know so to me affirmative action is still necessary for those situations where and here's the thing who does affirmative action hurt and who does it help who who does it hurt who does it help um yes i would say that the the hurt is very small all right we're not talking about direct damages to any person but i think the hurt would be to our sociological capacity our, our sociocultural capacity to move past race uh, i think it hurts us to the extent that as long as we continue to think in color categories we are trapping ourselves and we're tying ourselves to thinking in color categories uh, and i just don't think that's a good way to think now of course i'm not uh, powerfully against affirmative action right I, i'll never go to an anti-affirmative action rally <laughs> i'll never go stand in the streets and say stop voting for affirmative action uh please please if you support affirmative action vote for it that's mm -hmm. what democracy is about um yeah i personally don't uh, i think it's time to take color off of our for all off of our stopping the first thing on our minds about considering a person's capabilities now i'll uh, say this i 100 percent agree with that period there should be no race it shouldn't be your age unless you're not 18 you know like it shouldn't be age it shouldn't be race it shouldn't be your sex any of that stuff it should not be yeah and i'm not saying i'm no. not i wouldn't say that it shouldn't be only that it shouldn't be first right if consider consider what i do uh, if you're looking at applicants, consider my skills, uh, mm -hmm. and then consider maybe my educational history, my employment history, uh, mm -hmm. and then maybe consider my extracurriculars. And then if you're looking at the demographics in your business and seventh, eighth, 10th down the road, if you want to look at race, Hey, that's your choice. I recommend you don't, uh, I think it's on the list of things to consider in a lot of categories like, um, not private employment, but I would say in in where do i think race is important for considering so we're, t we're talking about college admissions i don't think it's important for college admissions uh these days only because my preferred solution for wealth inequality and and un inequality of opportunities is basic income uh i think yeah. that's a, a very powerful uh ostensibly colorblind i don't like that phrase i'm putting my quote fingers up colorblind yeah. uh program because you know the reason I put yeah. quote fingers on it, because you see color. Obviously, you see color. That's the first thing you see mm -hmm. about a person, right? As soon as I see a person, the first thing I see is what color they are. Uh, and I like how Rick and Morty deals with race, because if you look <laughs> at Rick and Morty, a lot of people are blue. A lot of people are yellow. A lot of people are hamsters. A lot of people aren't even people. <laughs> and all that matters is how you treat each other, mm -hmm. right? That's what matters. Uh, look at Sesame <laughs> Street, right? Big Bird was yellow. Oscar was green. Uh right. Was he was he green? Yeah, Wilmo. What's his name? Elmo was red. Uh, Bert and Ernie yeah. were yellow and orange. Uh, you know what color you are yeah. is the first thing we see. Yes, yeah, so let's mm -hmm. not pretend that we don't see what color people are. That's the first oh, yeah. thing you of see. Course. But it's more important how that person behaves once you begin to interact. I'll tell you what. I I heard a funny ass video. I think it was even on like it's on YouTube of some sort. Some maybe TikTok or something, but. This guy, this they, they recorded a 911 call, and this guy had been uh, a victim of a hit and run. So a guy's in a vehicle, hit his car in a parking lot, and took off. Mm. And the lady's like, okay, what do he look like? He goes, 
Well, he had like a, a nice starter jacket on, and his he had an uh, uh, let's say a Chicago Cubs hat on. He goes a flat bill, not a round one, a flat bill, <laughs> you know. And she's like, okay, a flat what bill is he? hat. Yeah, and yeah. she's like, well, what does he look like? He goes, yeah. well, the hat. He goes, uh, looks like he stays fit. He's pretty, pretty muscular, good looking guy, a little bit of facial hair. She goes, well, what color was he? he goes, I don't know. I just told you I had a hat on, mm-hmm. you know. And she's like, um. But what, what, what was his hair like? He goes, he had on a hat. Oh, my and she's gosh. Like, okay. True. What did he look like? Uh, she goes, what do you mean? And she goes, what color is he? He goes, whoa, I took a dark turn. Oh, and my she's gosh. like, what? No, what color is he? He goes, yeah. he goes well, he's like white, but darker. And he's goes, like white, what? but darker? He goes, he's white, but just make it darker. And she's like, what? Hispanic? He goes, no, he's white, but just make white darker. Oh my He's gosh. a darker version of white. And she's like, what? He goes, he was fucking black lady. Yeah. Is that what you wanted to hear? Yeah. And he like screamed at her. And I'm like, oh, this dude, I want to meet him because that is freaking hilarious. I think what's I think what's going on there, and then you can actually <laughs> confirm or, or deny if, if you've experienced any of this, because this is just a theory of mine that I have about people who are sensitive. I guess specifically white people who are sensitive about saying the adjective black to describe a black person. Uh, and so, you know, I'm, I'm a black person. And so I think that what's happening is in a lot of households, people have come up to where the adjective black has been so closely associated with negative, stingy, harmful, greedy, you know, thieving, lying, all these negative things, that for them, even saying the term black, which is a totally neutral color adjective, I prefer to be called black. I'm proud of being a black American. If you're going to please refer to me as, uh, you know, the six foot black guy with the goatee that's the that's a good way to describe <laughs> me right uh, yeah. yeah and so i think what's happening in these people's households is that yeah the term black has been so closely associated with negative inherently negative and bad that they don't want to even say black because right. it feels like an insult to them because of how right. they've come up because they go oh, I, I can't call him a i can't call him a black guy uh and and there's a funny skit i'm not going to remember the name of the group uh but <laughs> this one one character is telling a story to another and he says so i'm standing at this uh this atm and a line is forming and the guy's taking a long time and people are getting upset and the guy's saying oh are people joining the line he says yeah he says who was in the line uh he says there was a there was a young lady behind me behind her there was a black guy and the guy goes was he all black and the guy goes yeah he was all black and they show this guy's imagination and he imagined a shadow person just <laughs> he imagined yeah, right. a, he imagined a pure black ghostly shadow person right because that's yeah. what that's what black is it's just an adjective and uh, have you do you think there's any truth to that that people have associated the neutral color term black with negative things such that they feel that's an insult and so they're hesitant to say it I think it depends on your experience mm. um, if you've had negative pushback on it then you're like oh, not saying that shit again like for me, like my girlfriend is black, but her family is literally from Africa, so they can literally say they're African Americans. Mm-hmm. That's accurate, mm-hmm. but it's not inclusive to all black people in America because being black in America is a unique experience. Um, and actually, that I'm reading that book, uh, "Uncomfortable Conversation with a Black Man." Mm. I'm telling you, it, it really helped me 
get a better grasp on this idea of labels. Um, mm. So he's a Nigerian descendant. His parents are from Nigeria. They came here. They had him. Um, so he grew up in a culturally Nigerian home in a white Texas affluent neighborhood because both his parents are Nigerian mm. and they typically have great educations there mm. apparently um, and very frugal uh, as far as like uh, um, they want to, you know, it's it's a typical immigrant home where it's all about education, work, 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 yep. get ahead, yep. you know, and he talks about that in his book. But he says, listen, I grew up, he goes, I'm not an African-American. That's a unique experience. He goes, I didn't grow up in an African-American community. I grew up in a white community where I was the black kid. Mm. He goes, and I grew up in white culture. He goes, I didn't have any black culture. So I went to college. And he goes, I felt like Tarzan when he got out, out of the forest. He goes, oh, wait, these are my people. I'm black. Mm. You know, like it was a, in his book, he talks about him questioning himself as mm. his identity. He goes, am I black? Because his friend's like, Ocho, you don't talk black. Ocho, you don't dress black. Ocho, you sure are smart for a black guy. You know, this is a bunch of racist undertones in an all-white neighborhood, affluent all-white neighborhood. So he talks about that label, and he goes, listen, African-American. That was the latest one. Before that, it was Negro. Before that, it was colored. He goes, all these things evolved. He goes, listen, black is the most inclusive term you can come up with because it covers everyone that looks like me. Doesn't matter if you're an immigrant this year, because as soon as you get here, your ass is black. Black works, but I also like the term ados. Have you ever heard ados? Ados. Yeah, I really like the term ados because that that identifies the cultural heritage and the Mm -hmm. psychological heritage that Mm -hmm. we as ados carry. I'm part of that group, and so you can call Mm -hmm. me a black guy. I'm certainly a black guy. I'm proud to be black. I'm also proud to be ADOS. I'm a descendant right. of slaves. I have the self-doubt. I have the hesitancy. I have the, un- the, the, the skepticism about my ability to compete in the greater American economy that comes from being ADOS. I grew up there, uh, and that's what our culture has. I think that's the major component in our seemingly perennial inability to, to climb the rungs. Uh, of course, the but history I- of, of racism is the major, uh, if you want to call it, yeah. the, the major ingredient in that soup. But that well, that soup that's being mixed now, I think the biggest, if you want to call it, lid on it is our self-doubt. I think black people are, and this is black as in ADOS, I think ADOS people are inherently self-doubting. A, a story I can tell is I used to drive Uber, uh, and I met a guy who he got in my car, he was wearing a suit, young 20s uh, i said where are you from where are you going you know and he said oh i came from back east i actually used to live out here i'm a regional sales manager sales manager for this company that does this and this and this i said oh how'd you end up there he said well i was a waiter at this restaurant and i built a rapport with one of our customers and that guy said you, it was several years ago now but uh or a couple years ago now and that guy said oh you know i like you hey i'll, I'll give you a shot at my company as an entry-level salesperson we'll see what you can do and so he did that he moved up in the company now he's a regional sales manager and I thought that was a great story, uh, one that I'd tell mm-hmm. to the day. And then there was another time this black guy got in my car, and I was driving him into young black guy, um, 18, 19. And I was driving him into L.A. to some French restaurant. I say, hey, is this restaurant nice? He says, I can't afford to eat there. I said, oh, man, you must have some incredible opportunities to mingle with some of the clientele. He said, nah. 
I said, what do you mean? He said, not for me. And so I said, this is it. This is the exact discrepancy that's keeping us in the middle to lower rungs. Is we're cutting ourselves, we're, we're defeating ourselves before we ever even get a chance to come to the table. Uh, I was very confident that that young man, had he gone into that restaurant and said, I'm going to build some connections. I'm going to make some friends in, in high places. And I'm going to put my best foot forward and, and get to know people and work hard. That he could have built an opportunity out of working in that restaurant, just as that other white guy did. Um, but yeah. you would have to have an experience that incentivize him to look for that because if you're he not would. incentivized he then would. you don't know it's an, a yeah. possibility yeah, yeah. you know no, like that's, that's totally there the ignorance is yeah. there calling yeah, it ignorance in the that. soft way not a capital you're an ignorant person <laughs> just you don't yeah. know what your opportunities are right right and we we all have those yeah like we don't know and so it's hindsight of course but yeah i i, I don't know man like my oldest son uh caleb he's he's a biracial and I had to have that talk with him about 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock, hands on a steering wheel, mm. open palms, you know, all that mm. kind of stuff because I was scared for him. Because mm. um, around here, there's there's been some scenarios where young black men have come up missing, mm. last being known, chased by the cops, you know, and they're just wow. gone. Like when I, was, when I was a senior in high school, I can't remember the kid's name, unfortunately. There's been too many to remember any kind of names, but... I was a senior in high school, and there's a kid from Benton Harbor, a black kid, who was walking through St. Joe, which is the rich white people place across the river. Like, mm-hmm. literally, across, you could like, throw a stick. It's across the river. Um, so he crossed the bridge, and he was walking down the street, and the last thing they seen is he was being chased by a group of, like, five white guys who was chasing him. Jeez. And then when, was, up, when was this? When I was in uh, 1993. 93. Jeez. Yeah. So yeah, ninety three. So then his body was found up, washed up on the shore later that week. No crime, no nothing's ever been brought up about it. No charges, you know. And I actually went to the uh, Black Lives Matter march here in Benton Harbor in St. Joe this summer, and heard all these stories. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. You know. Then there's another person who was brought up on murder charges, and he, there's like testimony and witnesses that said he no, he's at this restaurant eating dinner with his with his mom. She worked at this restaurant, and he was there eating lunch with his mom on her dinner break, hmm. on her lunch break. Like, no, he was over here killing somebody. We have witnesses. And they're like, no, <laughs> that's not right. And he's, he was over here with his mom eating. Like, you know, and, like, he went to prison. He's still in prison. You know, you hear all these stories. I'm like, mother, what the hell? That's going on in my backyard, and yep. you're not even aware of it sometimes until it hits you. You know, and so I have to, you know, um, I was thinking about going on McCoy. And talking to him about like as a as a white father who helped raise, you know, my, my stepson Caleb since he was five, mm. four or five. Mm. Um and his dad wasn't always there. He was gone for a few years, he just up and gone for like three years. So I had to take the reins, you know, and be like, All right, now I'm raising you hundred percent. You know, um and I've always treated him like my own, all my I got four kids, so mm. but like I had to have that uncomfortable conversation with my kid here where he's riding my car. We're heading to a football practice and I was the football coach and we had some other kids in the car and he goes, Hey boys. I'm like, yeah, what's up? He goes, do you think my dad's dead? Hmm. I'm like, uh, and I just looked at him. I was like, and it was no tear in his eye, just a legit question. Hmm. So he must think he's dead. Cause why else would not call or, or anything for his birthday for Christmas hmm. for th- nothing for a, year, a couple of years. It had been like two or three years at this point. And I said, Caleb, all I'll say is he better be. Mm. 
And he goes, you hope he's dead? I was like, no, no. I said he better be. That's the only excuse I'll take mm-hmm. for him not to show up at your birthday. I was very angry at him. We're, we're yeah. friends to this day now, but he had a very dark path that he, he had to go down to figure it out. And mm-hmm. he got back, and now he's back in his life, which I'm happy about. But yeah, he thing. abandoned him, you know, and I had to forgive him for that mm-hmm. and kind of just make peace with him to, for Caleb's sake. And uh, he's a good guy. He just makes bad choices sometimes. Um, but, like, I had to have that conversation with him. And then kids at school, his friends, hey, that's not, is that your mom? You don't look like, you don't look like your mom. Is that, are you adopted? I've had to deal with so much race in my life. It's just ridiculous. Well, the history, the history of our country is the history of race, largely. Um, I think that's one of the big, one of the big crosses uh, that we bear. And so, yeah, I don't think, I think it would be unreasonable uh, if you talk about you know, if somebody wrote a book called The History of America and they never talked about race, <laughs> well, then you didn't that's, really pay attention uh, to the history the of this country. Yeah, yeah. The history that's of this country is deeply embedded in race. But I don't think that our future has to be so in, entangled in race. And so yeah. that's that's part of my effort to make help make that transition. Uh, but when it comes to absentee, what absentee fatherism has done to the black, that I'm a child from an absentee father. They grew, I grew up in yeah, Compton. Me too. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so my, I know what absentee fatherism does and what it did for me was it caused me to look to the streets for examples yeah. of being a man. And unfortunately yep. for teenagers, the streets are a more potent influence than the males in their own family. I've got an uncle that's a judge. My grandfather was an attorney. I've got another uncle that's an attorney and all my, another uncle that was been professional for a long time. My other uncle has even been professional for a long time. So I had great examples of manhood in my family, but the streets were more pertinent. It was more important that the the sagging, weed smoking, name calling, gold wearing idiots, uh, drug weed dealing idiots. It was more important that I got their approval than mm. even that of my own family. Um, and that's just one of the unfortunate facts of, of growing up in a poor neighborhood, with especially without a father. Uh, if my dad had been in the home. Maybe things would have been different. Uh, I think the studies these days are showing that, are showing that uh, having a father in the home is one of the most meaningful ways to shape a young man's mind into productive participation in healthy society. Well, and I, I'm thankful my dad left. <laughs> mm, mm. Isn't that crazy? Because he was so racist and hateful. Because of who? Because it's kind of a case where a dad helps if the dad is healthy, if the dad is helpful, (laughs) right? If he's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, if your dad is David Duke, you wouldn't miss him too much if you you didn't agree with him. So, like, I look back at that and think, okay, uh, life handed me lemons, so be it. And, Mm. And you make the best of it. Like, I got lucky, though. At the same time, I am no better than anybody else that grew up without a father and took a really, really bad path and wind up going to jail or stealing or have a violent criminal arrest record or whatever. Like my little brother, he's a, a multiple violent offender. Hmm. Um, and what progress, what do you think we can do? What do you think the next best steps we can take towards racial reconciliation in this country are? Well, I don't think we have racial reconciliation so we have our own personal reconciliations mm. 
We need to teach mindfulness and mental health and anger management for young men specifically and for young women, body images, you know, just mental health in general, because our little girls are, are being told they're not good enough by every filter on Snapchat. And it used to be a magazine. You start the magazine out, you open a beauty magazine like Glamour or whatever. You open up the first page as a, as a beautiful young lady. And by the end of that book, those girls are so goddamn skinny, you can never attain that uh, standard. Like, literally, you look at those old magazines, they got skinnier the farther you read into the book. Hmm. This is kind of brainwashing effect that you're not good enough. This is pretty. No, no, this is pretty. No, no, this is pretty. You know, Kardashians, this is pretty. Big butt, that's pretty. Fat lips, that's pretty. Hmm. Or you're a supermodel, you're super skinny, that's pretty. And there's nothing in the middle that's really celebrated, which is where most of us live. Hmm. It's just normal people. And even that is is fictitious on Snapchat filters. And you can change, like, I can make my skin look flawless with a filter. Mm. And I have, like, scars and discoloration from scars. And, you know, like, I've got some pretty, pretty memorable marks on my face from, from injuries. But I can make that all go with a filter, which is where most people live is online, you know. So I think it needs to be one-on-one counseling, like, legit counseling at high schools and middle school, especially middle schools with when they go through puberty we need to have a mental professionals i really think we need to double down on that because how do you not hate someone else when you already hate yourself mm. Mm. it's so easy to hate others if you hate yourself <laughs> and so what i would like to see in a perfect world if voice is the president that all high schools and middle schools, but, have. but not in the perfect world. What would you recommend for the world we're going to have this year? It's not oh, going to be perfect this year. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. What would you see oh, us do in 2021, 2022? What, what's the next practical, achievable step? Mm. Do you think we can take? Man, because I think it's I think basic income. Basic income is my my blanket policy recommendation for pretty much all of our social ills. And though I of course don't think that it's going to solve all of our social ills. But I think it's the next best action that we can practically take that is a step towards the solution of all of our social okay. ills. Gotcha. Uh, I, I think basic so, income is, is just an amazing mechanism uh, that we should get in, in think, action. Yeah, I think basic income, first and foremost, should be there. And it should they should have a, a plan for the next pandemic, right? Mm. So let's say a 1000 bucks a month and you go on with your normal life. You have opportunities to make more money. You have the freedom to go be as wealthy as you want, as you heart desires. Mm. But if a shutdown happens, we have to have a plan that if you live here, then the the, the country's going to give you another thousand dollars a month. Let's say another thousand bucks a month. And if you live in L.A., L.A., which is a higher cost of living, the higher cost of living in a city, the more taxable income they have anyway. They should have a city. UBI and a state UBI that helps offset those huge things. So when we say shut it down, shut it down, literally go home, go home for a couple weeks. We're going to stomp down this infection rate and we're going to have, so we don't have to kill our economy. And then that way, no one gets laid off. We don't have to go and waste time in legislation about unemployment benefits being extended. Don't lay people off. They for won't real. be unemployed. They got that so wrong. Skip all that shit. Oh my God. Skip all that shit. 600 bucks a week for this, 300 bucks a week for that. Fuck it. 1200 bucks a week period or a month. 
It's across the board. Mm. And even if the people that are just got off of unemployment benefits, it's not like their life got better next week. Mm. You know, you, 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 you extended it, but it doesn't solve any problems. So to me, universal basic income with a pandemic increase uh, uh, contingency plan. Mm. Like we need to legislate that properly to have a plan. The next person that runs for the United States should have a pandemic response plan in their in their stuff, right? Uh, I think Medicare for all is necessary. Every single person should be covered, but I think you should have the option to keep the insurance that you have if you want it. It's not that big of a deal. Giving people an option doesn't hurt anybody. And what it does is, like, if I was a business owner with a 1,000 employees or a 100, whatever, and I have to provide health insurance, and it costs me, so I pay them, like, 15 bucks an hour to, to run a gas station or some shit, right? Um and then I have to pay another $7 an hour for their health care compensation package. And then you as the employee have to pay 500 bucks a month out of pocket. And it's 3,500 bucks out of year, uh, uh, out of pocket a year. That's 10 grand a year for health care for you. And then as an employer, you're paying $7 an hour extra on that as well. Hmm. Now, Medicare for all with an option. So the employer goes next year, he goes, instead of bargaining with, ASR with Aetna, with Blue Cross Blue Shield, with HMOs, PPOs, all these fucking things. I'm not going to waste my HR's time anymore. How about we just drop the healthcare coverage? You are now, you should opt in. It's in your best interest to opt into Medicare. And then we will give you, so you're saving us $7 an hour. Mm. We're going to give you a $3 an hour raise. We're going to split the difference. Well, I, don't that, I don't think they'll do that, to be honest. I know, but yeah. it, it, it can be incentivized that way. Some, you know, you know like, some companies will. Uh, I'm imagining smart ones will. If the competitive my, ones will. True, true. I'm imagining if my company uh, took their health care, they'd probably just pocket it. But as an employer, hmm. you want retention, and that that's where the free market works in your favor as an hmm. employee to say, okay, this one didn't, this one did. All it takes is one. A guy like Dan Price changed the entire landscape in Portland for employment. Hmm. Like is cost Dan of Price living, in Portland. Uh, I think uh Seattle. I'm sorry, Seattle, right? I don't know. Seattle, Washington, know. or is it Portland, Oregon? It looks like it's Seattle. Okay, he's. I know he's in the Northwest, but like he changed the entire market around him because he became the place where everyone made seventy thousand dollars as a fucking janitor. Yep. Right out of high school. Yep. But guess what happens? His business grows exponentially. He hires more employees. Now his competition can't compete they have to offer more you know so and i think I that's think, one of the little under one of the underemphasized benefits of of basic income and con, especially when it's combined with a public healthcare uh, option like you put forward is that it gives us us being the common the worker so much more bargaining power right cuz the current paradigm is that okay if i'm an employer i i run a spa in my city and there are 10 spas in the city. And so I'm going to look for some some massage therapists, however massage therapists there are in my city. Let's say there are only let's say there are only four and there are 10 spas. So we and let's say they're good. Then we're just competing with the other spas. And we know that those massage therapists will have to select some spa 
in order to live. And because we know that, we can offer less. We can offer to pay this because we know they have to choose someone. So we're only competing with the other spas. But if those massage therapists could live without working at a spa at all, now we have to pay them enough to get them in the door. We aren't just competing with the other businesses. We're competing with their ability to live without us. And I think that's a pressure that needs to exist in our culture. Uh, it's a currently lacking large part. And that's why you have people who work at Walmart and accept government assistance because they have to live. They don't have a choice other than to work at mm-hmm. McDonald's and get GR because McDonald's yep. isn't paying them enough and they need to live. So if yep. they had an option to not work at McDonald's and live, believe you me, they wouldn't. And then McDonald's. In McDonald's case, they'd probably just automate everything. <laughs> everything is simple. Yeah, yeah, they just automate it all the way. At which, you know, what Andrew Yang saw this coming. That's why he was so wise. Uh, and and let's just get that ball rolling. Let's give people their time. Let's give people their power. And I have faith that the common American will carry us through this this broken age of information. Well, how about this? If we actually get universal basic income, if we actually get Medicare for all with a public option. What else is there to fight about? Oh, there's tons to fight about. Whether the I know, election was, be, whether the well, election was stolen or not, right. <laughs> we'd fight no, about I'm saying that. like, no, this is over. This is now. We're in the summer of 2021. Mm. Excuse me. It's 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 July 4th. We have passed legislation to say, okay, we're going to provide everyone a thousand dollars a month, yeah. and if there's a pandemic, two thousand dollars a month, whatever. Yeah. And now we have the public option. Everyone has the public option to opt into Medicare. Yeah. Boom. Um. Now, what are we going to fight about? Uh, we're going to so, fight about reparations. We're going to fight about foreign policy. We're going to fight about um, the, elec- the the truth of the election. We're going to fight about yes. climate change. We're going to fight about climate. the federal budget. Exactly. Uh, and the federal budget will have to be – you have to prioritize your spending because now you don't have enough to be thrown around at the military. Mm-hmm. Seven hundred and eighty billion dollars. Yep, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about military spending, and I think this is to your to your point. We're going to talk about issues of substance. Right, right now, all we are right now, we're literally trying to convince our elected leaders to allow us to survive. That's our fight. Let us live. Help us live. What are you doing? All you're doing is accepting donations and making sure that the companies that are broken and mismanaging their money never fall apart. That's all you're Mm -hmm. doing. You're just making sure that the banks that exist never go away, that the airlines that exist never go away. What, what what happens if Boeing as a company goes under? Do all those engineers suddenly vanish? Does all the knowledge of how to build a jet engine all of a sudden get burned away? Does that, is that what happens if Boeing goes under? No. The corporate execs walk away with their money. The engineers walk with what they've earned. And those people go work for other airline companies. And if they make one. And they, and they make a new airline company that, that mm-hmm. has a neutral... Uh, balance sheet and whoever now whoever owns boeing's debt gets screwed but you know what i'm not against people who make a living simply by buying debt getting screwed over a little bit more than they are right now uh if that's if that's your contribution is just owning debt then you could probably take a take a hit here or there i would guess well i'm not saying those people should starve i don't think they should no but uh that reminds me of that guest that was on gang speaks um he talked about how investors should be allowed to go bankrupt because they take the risk and they yeah. get the reward. But that's um that's part of the risk is um you might go bankrupt. Yeah, that's the you risk. Might lose all your money. Yeah, our our elected officials are doing doing everything they can to make sure that investment comes with zero risk. 
They're making right. sure they're making sure that they have no risk, but all the risk now gets transferred to our shoulders. Yeah, his name is Chamath Palahapatita, I think. Shit, I fucked that up bad, but I know I think yeah. I know who you're talking about, yeah. He was genius. He's the one that went on Fox News and says, Yeah, let the people that own the stocks go lose their money. Yeah. They took the risk. Yeah. They have to be savvy investors, not just you make an investment, we're gonna protect you at all costs. Yeah. Not at the detriment of all your employees. Yeah, and you I know, think like, I think that's um, where the fight would go if we got those things in place. I think that's yeah, a, to meaningful conference, though, and those are meaningful fights to have. Uh huh. But we'd get past this bullshit talking points. Yeah. Universal basic income, the jobs will come roaring back, town by town, because the free market and capitalism. This is why UBI is better and superior than a federal jobs guarantee. Yep. Federal jobs guarantee, the government tells you what your community needs. So bad. And they have been shown to suck at that for a long time. Yeah. Um, UBI says, I we as a community in the small town of Coloma live in decides, hey, this this uh business is good, but there's more demand. We need another one. So then someone's gonna take an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm gonna start building handicap accessible ramps at a at a convenient price. Because there's now there's resources, there's demand, hmm. and they have resources. Now I can go around and literally just build handicap accessible ramps for all the old people in this neighborhood. Um, create jobs, right? Now, the market will also say there's too many, and then all of you can't survive. Then all of you won't, and we'll have a normalization. But mm-hmm. there will be jobs created instantaneously that year, if not that week. Um, people... You can't create jobs in a capitalist market without capital. That's right. Um, so it's, it's just so obvious to all of us in the Yang because we know we've heard these things a thousand times. Yeah. But if you do UBI, you address jobs, econom- economic opportunities, and uh, job security, and it strengthens the unions so they can strike um, and have more than $25 a, a day on strike pay. That's what I got when I was in the union. You get 25 bucks a day. You're making twenty five bucks an hour. It's 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 crazy. Um, Actually, and then there's, like there's another benefit of of basic income. So if if America there's there's a benefit to the first country to build a robust basic income system, and it comes for the next generation of entrepreneurs. If America does it first, then what we'd be freeing people to do is we'd be saying to all these 18, 22, 25 year olds that can all they have is a group of five knuckleheads that have an idea and, and middling education, but they're excited about life and they want to do something. They could rent a house, rent a garage, and they could run an online business. They can offer web services. They could offer you know, web page description. They can offer so, uh, online social media editing. They could run a YouTube channel where they do random things. Yep. Whatever sort of online business they could put together, they would have the freedom to do that. And the first country to initiate a basic income to give their people this robust freedom would have the first wave of entrepreneurs to exist once the global economy truly comes online uh, in yep. the in the internet sense, as it already is mostly online, but it's but it's getting there more and more. Uh, I think as the economy grows, you want people free to pursue whatever opportunities they have. And there's so many opportunities in the digital space that only require young, energetic people to have their own attention. Uh, that we could create an entire class of entrepreneurs, and we could we could set us up. 
we've we've had the first wave of tech giants, right? If we yep. institute basic income, we could have the second wave and the third wave also be American companies. That's the type of foresight that our current leadership lacks. Uh, well, but Andrew Yang you has be, Yeah, you want to be Coke, not Pepsi. You want to be know? Coke, not what does that mean? Uh, Pepsi has always been the number two soft drink maker in the world because they're the second soft soft drink mm. company. Coke came out first. The first mover. Yeah, you want to be the first mm. Coke, not Pepsi, man. Coke came out, they were number one, and then Pepsi came out, they tried to compete. And Coke made Diet Coke. Pepsi made Diet Pepsi. Coke and Diet Coke were one and two forever. Whoa. So think about that. You want to be Coke, not Pepsi. Yeah. Yeah, and we have we have a chance to be Coke. Uh, yeah. if we put in robust basic income, mm-hmm. Medicare for all. Uh, I'm all for a public option or something like a Canadian system. Uh, my mm-hmm. understanding of the Canadian system is that they have a public system uh, where people there there is triage, right? So if you need a knee surgery that's going to take your leg out. You're going to get priority over somebody who needs a knee surgery that isn't going to take their leg out within the next month or so, yeah. right? And yeah, so it's prioritized. It's prioritized, which creates waiting that you don't get in the states. I understand that, but as a, as I also understand it, they have a private. There's still a private healthcare system in Canada. It's not like you can't have private healthcare in Canada if you've got the money yeah. to pay to get your knee worked on immediately, even though you don't need it. If you've got the money, go get that done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and well, those and two also, things together can make um, us the code. Well, also in Canada, like, well, in Bernie's vision, let's put in Bernie's single payer. This is what I have a problem with: is Bernie's single payer timeline says according to your age is when you get it. Hmm. Um, and once you get it, you cannot have you don't have the option to stay on the one you have, right? Hmm. So. And to me, it should be also in the plan. I'm going to, if I ever get to interview Andrew Yang, I'm going to talk to him about this. If you make another public health policy running for president, make sure it says, if we pass Medicare for all with a public option, if you're in Congress, you are automatically required to opt in. Mm. Mm. This incentivizes them to make it worth a shit. Mm. It affects them. Yeah. Uh, that's why I'm a fan of AOC. When she became a, a senator, a congresswoman, she live streamed her orientation process every day. She said, "Okay, really? guys, they gave me a, they gave me an iPod or an iPad. They gave me a MacBook Pro. They gave me an iPhone with all the security stuff. They yeah. they're controlling." And she goes, "And here's my insurance package. Why am I special now? Mm. What change has made besides I won an election? Now I get the best insurance offered. Like, why am I special now? Mm. This is not." We all deserve this. And I have been a fan for her saying that since day one. I don't agree with all of her stuff, but I'm a fan of her spirit. Um, like like Andrew says, he's a fan of the spirit of Medicare for all single payer. You just have a different way of getting there. I think you use the public option with the market to drive down costs, first of all, and, and get it under control. But when it comes to health care, it's got to say that Congress doesn't get the golden parachute, man. I think that's a pretty, pretty incisive move. I, th- I think it's an insightful uh, move. I think I like that. I like that. Yeah, it, you want to incentivize a good Medicare because what I don't want is Medicare for all single payer from Bernie, and then Mitch McConnell and Nancy Pelosi says we'll give them some tartar sauce. Let yeah. them have their tartar sauce. You that's kind of like what the French do in the public schools. Mm-hmm. So in the French public schools, 
they don't have a, a super robust private school system like we do. So the rich, a lot of the rich kids go to the public schools. And so the rich parents make sure that the public schools are top notch because their kids are there. And so the middle and poor kids can just kind of ride those coattails uh, mm -hmm. because the rich parents are going to make sure that their kids are getting a good education. And if we put the rich kids in the same school as the middle and poor kids, then the middle and poor kids benefit disproportionately and the rich people yeah. are happy. Uh, and so Maybe it's a it system, Congress. something like that, you know, when we're, when we're truly share eating from the same table, then we're all incentivized to make sure there's no poison on it. But if you've got a separate table, then my table can be poisonous and it's really not of harm to you and that doesn't help well i think that would win an election alone hmm. if he says you know what i'm gonna do a public option but here's the deal congress doesn't get the option you are a you are a servant to the people you don't get the option you don't get to become a lobbyist you can't do speaking engagements and you can't take a private insurance policy you have to have medicare for all and you cannot trade stocks See, just can't. I, I think that would weed out uh, the people who prop, you know, it's very possible that these people have, have infected our, our the ranks of our public elected officials. It would weed out the people who go to office, who try to earn office to get rich. That's why yeah, they, they see that it's a thing. They go, you know what? I can become a congressperson and become wealthy because I became a congressperson. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want those people with those incentives running. We don't even want those people with those incentives running for uh, office. If you want to mm -hmm. get rich, do something in the private sector. Build something. Make something. Yep. Do some service. Yep. Go get rich. Elon, like yeah. I said earlier in this conversation, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are two great examples, and, and Bill Gates, of American entrepreneurism. Go make something. Go build something awesome. If people like it, they'll buy it, and you'll get a bunch of money. But don't run for office because you think you're going to get a bunch of money for it. Uh, we don't want those people running. But they do. And they run this country. What do you, you know, think? Right, right uh, what do you What do you think of the 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 two thousand dollar checks? You think we're gonna get them, or do you think we're not gonna get them? Is it dead in the water? Uh, we're not gonna get it right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're not gonna I get it now. Are we gonna get them next session? Do you think? I believe that we will pressure the living shit out of this administration mm. to do it until the end of the pandemic. Now, here's the beautiful thing: if we can make sure we frame it properly and say, "Listen, Bernie." AOC, the squad, Corey Bush, any of those guys get together and build a fucking robust package. I'm talking with all the bells and whistles for the people. That's where we negotiate from is a place of everything. We, we, we start too low. Mm. You know, they start too low. Oh, $1,200 a month. Bitch, that's, that's what we should get. It's like mm. a bartering system in Senate. You don't barter at the, at the price you want. You go high, they go low, and you meet in the middle. So you got to set the stage better, man. So what I'm hoping is they can get together. The squad is deeper. Um, now they'll have like 15 people. And then we'll get someone like uh, Nina Turner in sometime soon. And boy, you want to talk about a killer. I love her. Her, her passion is awesome. It's infectious. Um, but I think if we have enough people, so the squad goes from four to like 12. Mm. And then you got Republicans who are on board with cash. You have independents, you have uh, and Democrats, right? So let's say you get like 15, 20% of everybody in Congress to agree with this thing. That's good enough to write the package 
and then put a public campaign. That's where they want to play the games. We'll play the public game too. I mean, they're they're they have just desecrated Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell's homes. Mm. You see that they tagged their houses. Really? No, I haven't seen oh, yeah, this. Dude. I didn't. I thought you were yeah. talking. About, I thought you were talking about their <laughs> their metaphorical oh. homes as far as the bill. No, no they got they doxed oh, them. Oh, that's so showed bad. Showed up and spray painted their homes uh. and said two K checks. Now survival that money. That sucks. That's ugly. I'm against it's that. Ugly. I'm for the checks. I, I want the checks. I'm anti Mitch. Yep. Vote him out. But don't spray paint his home. Don't don't do that. That's not civilized. Well, don't break the law. You can't yeah. break yeah. the law to change the law. It's fucking dumb. Well, I wouldn't. You know? I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say don't break the law generally because uh, Mahatma Gandhi actually did a protest by breaking the law. They made it illegal yeah. to have British salt, and so he just walked out and grabbed some salt from the sea. Or they made it illegal yeah. to have any salt that wasn't bought from the salt monopoly. Right. And so he broke the law as a protest. And so breaking the law can sometimes be the best protest, but uh, I would say I would say don't right. damage people's physical safety and don't threaten people's physical safety uh mahatma gandhi never threw rocks at people mahatma gandhi never damaged anybody's home never did any property right. damage uh yeah. in order to in order to protest and so i'm wholly against property damage i'm wholly against threatening people's physical safety uh disagree with people right we have deep disagreements yeah. we have theological political social dis, uh sociological disagreements but that doesn't mean there's any re any any reason why i should feel that i have a right to threaten your physical safety and the physical safety of your family and and your property and the physical uh, safety of your property uh, i don't wish that yeah, upon I you i don't i don't wish that upon my ideological enemies uh, i hope us to have robust debates now and in the future no matter how we deeply mm -hmm. disagree so i'm against that that spray paint i didn't know about that at all oh, yeah that just happened this week mm. um like two days ago yesterday and today wow um but yeah so like it's getting close to home for them mm. and that's mm. a real thing that's a motivator fear i hate to say it that's a great motivator i don't like it i don't think we have a place for that but some do um, but that's that's just a side note. The political pressure is like uh, I made a video yesterday or two days ago. I said, hey, Hitch, here's Mitch McConnell's campaign office phone number in, in Washington, D.C. I said, here's Mitch McConnell's campaign office in Washington, D.C.'s fax number. Mm. Why don't we start faxing them our rent bill, our mortgage bill, our light bill? That's right. And yesterday they had to send a thing out saying, please stop sending Venmo requests <laughs> and fax. And they turn off their fax machine. Too. That's right. That's what you do. So that's what you do. That's civil I guess, disobedience. I guess that's that's a, a fine line between damaging their physical house and and, annoying and, and, them. No, and blowing up their printer because yeah. you fax them too much, which is technically yeah. property damage, but you know what? Let's 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 admit that property damage exists on a spectrum, and that some yes. of it is un some of it's harmful to the point of we shouldn't do it, and some of it is okay. And so, property like damaging that. their fax machines mm -hmm. by blowing it up, by sending them your rent checks, please do that. Please. It doesn't they'll hurt. Get, them they'll physically. get more fax machines. Yeah, it doesn't threaten their physical well-being. It doesn't. It just makes it doesn't. very uncomfortable. It doesn't threaten their bodies at all. Yeah, uh, I'm all about making people uncomfortable to incentivize good behavior. It's kind of like coaching in sports. I didn't scream and cuss the kids out. I made them uncomfortable. I put them in push-up position. That's a good distinction. Why? That's a good distinction. There's a difference yeah. between being uncomfortable and being actually under physical threat, right? Right. We should right. make people uncomfortable. Uh, mm -hmm. And if they 
Now, they might interpret that as a threat on their physical safety. But well, uh, I interpret not giving us health care as a threat on my physical safety. Yeah, there's actually a scenario so, like that in my family right okay. now where my cousin is my cousin found out some bad news about my uncle. Uh, and so mm-hmm. my cousin has said, I'm going to go talk to him. My uncle is scared. My uncle is scared. My cousin's going to beat him up. My cousin isn't going to beat him up. But I said, you know what? This is what I told my mom. I said, we should let him go have that conversation thinking he's going to get beat up. That fear is good because we know we know. He's not going to get beat up. My cousin isn't going to be uncivilized that way, but he doesn't. And so in this case, this is a case of him being deeply uncomfortable because he needs to be confronted. But we all, as a society, know that he's not actually in physical danger. And I think that's the the point that you're pushing on. Yeah. Making people uncomfortable is how you incite, you negatively uh, enforce bad behaviors. Mm. So I look at it like being a parent, like being a coach in sports. Or just being like a a CEO of a business, an owner of a business, an entrepreneur, you want to disincentivize negative behaviors and incentivize good behaviors. So that's why I said make sure Congress has to take the Medicare and incentivizes them to make the best package possible because they want it too. Like like you're saying, you don't you don't shit where you eat kind of thing, right? Um. So with Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and whoever the other idiots are, I can't. Uh, uh, Lindsey Graham. Or what's his name? Yeah, that's it. Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Is it Graham? Okay. I think so. Uh, so make them all uncomfortable that they're no longer because the, the comforts is what keeps them there and keeps them from changing. Hmm. Making someone uncomfortable changes your behaviors. If you get cold, you go put on a goddamn coat. If you get hot, you turn up the heat, man. They take off some coats. We need to make them disrobe a little bit. They're so comfortable. Hmm. They're so comfortable. Oh, I got the best insurance possible. I get $174,000 a year guaranteed. Even if we shut the government down, we get paid. Change that shit right there. When the government shuts down, they don't get paid either. That shit went went 45 days. You know what I mean? Like We have to find a way to incentivize good behavior and de-incentivize negative behavior. Um, and that's kind of... Just basic leadership. And I think, you know, of course, we're sorely missing that right now. Um, we have a child with a thimble or uh, with his thumb in his mouth, with his, with shit running down his legs from his diaper not being changed as the president. Like, it's, it's a fucking disgrace. Well, I think you and I are on the same page that, uh, that we're grateful that we got him out. Uh, there's a little bit, there's a little bit to be seen, but (laughs) chances are that he got him out. Uh, and you know neither of us are Joe oh, Biden done, fans, <laughs> but but I think we've got, I don't know, a, l- a little bit of gratitude for the shift to the left, towards the left, right? Uh, that that getting yeah. Trump out and getting Biden in has meant. Uh, I think we've done it, boys. I think we've I think we've done it. Uh, man, it is so good talking to you uh i think we're i think we're part of the same clan when it comes to (laughs) political considerations on the spectrum please tell the people where to find you and what you do you've been so i want to thank you too you've been so good man sharing my articles Uh, i appreciate that opportunity uh please tell tell the people where to find you and what you do so you know i have my podcast mindful skeptics podcast it's seo optimized it's on everything it's the same thing nobody else has that um but the one I want to mention is the trickle up, guys. We are trying to have a correlation, a court. What is it? Con- where you put all the stuff in one place. I can't remember the term. Concentration? 
yeah, a concentration of content in one place. So when the next generation of UBI fans, the next generation of progressive uh, involved kids and young people or adults, they have a place to come find everything that aligns with support of universal basic income with podcasts, YouTubes and articles being written by artists or uh, by writers. Right. So on the trickle up, we're sharing everyone we can get a hold of articles. They write in support of UBI human centered capitalism, you know, uh, and all the videos and the podcasts like this. Um, the big thing is we're going to start a daily news show. It's going to be called the low. It's the opposite of the hill. The hill, they're up in the hill rubbing elbows with all the big time people, right? We're down here on the low with the people. We're down here in the gutters, you know, like we're, it's the down low. It's the low down. So we're calling it the low. It's everyday people talking about everyday problems. And we're going to cover the news from that point of view, left, right, center, forward. You know, like that's kind of where we're at. And so you just, the, the trickle up is, it's called the trickle up.com. And of course, uh, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, all that normal stuff, you know. Um, but just if you want to be a part of the revolution, man, it's not going to be televised. It'll be live streamed. <laughs> well, I can attest to all of that. I'm so grateful to you, boys, for doing what you do uh, and stopping by. I feel like this is the first of many conversations that we'll have. Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. All right. Um, and I'll actually be reaching out to you about the low. You know, see if you want to be a part of that, too, if you have time. I do. I do have time. I'm excited. Uh, I, I think okay, we're teammates cool. in this. <laughs> okay. Good yeah. deal, man. I appreciate, I appreciate it. Bye-bye. All right. Later.